So what are you going to do with Garrett Cole? I'll ask Mike Gianella about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 22nd. It's show number 15 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, discussing surprising starts by star players, some baseball media coverage, fabbing in experts' leagues, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including two guys off to blazing starts, Sean Doolittle and Andrew Heaney, who are now on the I.L., And Matt Beagle, remember him, has news from the American League, including injuries to Jose Altuve, Javier Baez, John Means, and more American League news. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at St. Louis infielder Nolan Gorman. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about some good baseball reading I've been doing lately. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Garrett Cole has started 22 on a tear. Rebel run. We gotta talk some baseball. Well, Yankee starter Garrett Cole has not, to be charitable, entirely been worth his first round ADP or his $35 plus salary bids. Over three starts, he has a 6.35 ERA and a 141 whip in just 11 and a third, including an inning and two thirds stink fest at Detroit, with five walks, including four in one inning. And the two earned runs he allowed could have been more if reliever Clark Schmidt hadn't fanned Jonathan Scope with the bases loaded. So what gives with Garrett Cole? I have my ideas, but I'm going to ask someone who knows. In the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. I'm glad to be back, as always. Yeah, it's always a lot of fun talking with you in this context, but also in person, which we didn't get to do this year as much because uh, we used to talk a lot during tout and after tout because you were in the American League-only auction, as I am, but you moved this year to the 15-mixed draft. Why the shift? Um, Well, there were a few reasons. Uh, One reason was just that... I feel like there's more, there's fewer mono league players and readers. I, I start getting more questions about mix. So that, that was one thing. Um, I feel it makes for better content in season, particularly when it comes to transactions. Um, we'll, we'll talk about my fab column in a little bit that, that's geared toward deep mix. When it comes to only, it's really difficult and, and challenging to, you know, write about the same player two every week or write about a bunch of middle relievers that people don't really care about. But then three, frankly, I, I used to enjoy mono leagues more. I'm, I'm still in a few, but I, I've cut them down a little bit. Um, I, I find there's almost no free agent hitters like week to week, um, especially if you play in a league that's not like tout and you can't speculate on minor leaguers. And as a result, I feel like the game has shifted much more to luck than it should. Um, the draft or the, the salary cap draft is really important, but in season there's just a lot of, a lot of luck based on who does and doesn't get hurt. All of those things are true, and all, they – 
they make me think, and I've talked about this on Baseball HQ and with um, other guys in tout and with Peter Kreutzer, who's kind of running it, I don't understand why we continue to have the requirement of 14 hitters when the all of the major league teams have reduced the amount of hitters that they're keeping on the bench so that they can lengthen their uh, bullpens. And I wonder if it's time to really rethink going to, you know, 11 hitters or something like that. Because as you said, when the draft was over at Tout AL this year, you go the, the 23 picks plus the uh, four reserve picks, there's literally not a hitter in there that you'd ever want on your team. It's a bunch of fourth catchers and and a, a couple of you know those kind of middle infield guys who hit 200. Yeah, and I, I wrote a call about this last year, and, and that was one of my suggestions was you know sw- moving down to either 13 or, or 12 hitters, and and really kind of paring it down that way. Um, then a second suggestion was if you're not going to do that, like maybe moving only leagues to 10 teams. Um, j- just so that way you're, you're kind of, we, we had an, in 2020 in my, my local league, we did a one, we did like a one and done because people didn't want to carry over their keepers and they still wanted to play, but two people opted out. So we had a 10 team, like, like standalone one and done league. And the free agent pool was like a breath of fresh air. It was ale only. So that, they, you know, it's still, you're not picking superstars, but there was still some decent players to be had every week where you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't so bad. Yeah. And I don't think anybody realistically wants superstars in the free agent pool they should all be drafted and you know get the occasional guy who gets called up and depending on your league rules becomes a superstar that's available to everybody or to the guy with the most fab left over i don't think superstars is the question i think i think what you said earlier is exactly right what we need is not what we have here which is nobody yeah um, I, 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 in the analysis that I did last year, and I, I can send you this article later, I wrote in early September when nobody's really reading this stuff. Um, I, I made the point that when, you know, fantasy baseball started out and you're, you're older like me. So you, you remember, like there used to be 15 hitters and, and 10 pitchers on a typical major league roster. So, you know, what wound up happening in, in a typical fantasy league, it was about 78% of active hitters and 75% of active pitchers are drafted. And now with the roster staying the way they are, it's about 88% of the hitters and like 55% of the pitchers that are drafted. So it's very disproportional. I mean, it hasn't changed much with the pitching because you're mostly telling you about middle relievers that are good, but you can, don't really use that much. But with the hitting, it's rough because when you take the, the, the second catchers out who aren't taken, like you said, there's almost nothing there. Yeah. It, literally almost nothing the free agent page the last time i look i go every saturday evening or saturday afternoon and uh, i pull down a copy and paste into excel all the free agents that are available in my tout american league league and if you eliminate the guys who are third catchers or hurt there's literally like two guys two or three guys and you don't want because yeah. they're all terrible Right, I, I I know, and that that's the problem is that you're you're wasting even if even in a league like Tat with zero fab, like you're you're just running the risk of taking bad on base percentage and nothing or almost nothing else. I did the same sort of analysis you did at a for a column at Baseball HQ a year or two ago with that same look at the percentages and under the old rules with the old rosters it was seventy five seventy five as you said and now it's ninety fifty and and. Uh, I don't know. It it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. And one of the problems with it is I think it's discouraging people from staying in American League only or National League only leagues 
or not joining them in the first place or not even forming those leagues anymore because everybody's had the experience of going into a, a, a season having had what you thought was a pretty good draft and three weeks into it your team's dead because you lost your best pitcher for three weeks and you lost your best hitter for the season and there's nothing you can do to replace them and all you can do is hope that everybody else in your league has the same experience but somebody always doesn't right somebody always has a team that manages to avoid those injuries and underperformances and as you said it turns a game of skill into much more a game of luck yeah, I, I agree with all that. And it, it, you know, to get back to your question, that's one thing I like about fifteen team mix. It's it's a good balance between. I feel like shallower standard mix. There's so many free agents. I, I like the draft. Like I like the importance of the draft. So in a fifteen team mix, the draft is still important. You can't just you know have a bad draft and expect to win, or have a lazy draft and expect to win. But when you go out there there's still people to be had in free agency. Like it's still like, okay, like there's some hitters here that I can take and it's deep enough where they're not the best hitters, but they're, they're playing every day. There's some opportunity. Uh, there's some gambles you can take on platoon players, or maybe somebody who's not quite a starter yet who could still be good. Yeah. Whereas in, in mono leagues that almost never exists, it's the same boat in my, my local AL league. Like I'm looking at the free agent pool and, you know, it's like Andrew Velasquez and, and Zach Collins are, are the two interesting players out there. And like everything else is just kind of like. <laughs> and they were call-ups. They didn't start the year in the pool. Yeah. That, that, that's yeah oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Kelvin Gutierrez is the best player in the pool who started the year <laughs> in <laughs> the, uh, you know, in, available. And that's not really saying much. He's hitting the buck 25. Yeah. Say no more. Yeah. Uh... You do a weekly review of the FAB paid in the three experts leagues that you cover, the TGFBI League, which is a League of Leagues type setup at NFBC, Tout American League, as we mentioned, and Labor National League. So you do two two mono leagues and then a big mixed league. These are 15-team mixed, and there's, what, 30 or 40 leagues all competing, and there's an overall race. Why did you choose these three leagues in particular? Well, I started off by doing um, one of the Tout mixed and – then I started doing the leagues I was in. So it was Tout AL and, and Labor NL. Um, I shifted to TGFBI j- just because it is a league of leagues, as you you know kind of talk about. Um, I, I still do have a lot of readers who are mono league readers, so I do try to provide that content for them. Um, I feel TGFBI, because of the sample, there are actually 31 individual leagues. It kind of gives you a good flavor of like, okay, well, if there's – this player is available in 25 leagues. He's getting taken in 21 leagues. Chances are he's available in your league too. So, so that was the, that was kind of the thinking. I mean, there, there are outliers obviously, but I think that happens more when you're just writing about, like I used to write about top mixed draft. And I think my colleague, it was actually my colleague, Tim McCullough, who, who was, was writing that piece of it. Cause he's in the top mixed draft league. Um, so with one league, you can just get, kind of get some weird, like funky stuff. Um, and then I think the other thing, too, is in, in NFBC, you, you can't speculate on minor leaguers. Well, you can if they were drafted, but not if they weren't drafted and, they, you know, you have to wait for them to get called up in season. And in my experience, that kind of offers a truer fab picture, too. Like in a lot of leagues, I mean, you can't speculate on those minor leaguers until they're called up. Have you seen anything in this year's fab activity, fab levels, how much is being spent early, late, et cetera, that looks or feels different than you've seen in previous years? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, not much because it's early, but so people are still speculating on closers, of course, but I've noticed that the bids have been more conservative. Um, like last year, I think it was Julian Merriweather who who garnered a, a big, big, big 
like or a bunch of big fat bids, and there were one or two other relievers like that. So we're seeing that, but we're not seeing a, a lot. Of, we're not seeing a lot in the way of triple digit bids on closers. So so that's the first thing I see that's that's different. I think there's just the recognition that yes, someone getting the saves today, particularly a, a pickup, is not likely to be the closer in at the end of September. Um, so the second thing is um, last year there were already a few rookies and, and or younger hitters available and they were getting some fairly aggressive fab bids this year. It's been Owen Miller. who wasn't even really that young. You know, he's been around a little bit who, who get, got some big bids and, and not much else. So th- those are the two big things I've, I've noticed so far. Some of the interesting names in your week two coverage uh, include Joan Duran of Minnesota. His TGFBI bids ranged from one unit, there's an optimist, to 72 with an average winning bid of 23. And this is a thousand unit uh, budget. Obviously, this is a betting on the come. Uh, bit, the bidders are hoping Duran, who has the skills in the fastball, certainly to step into the closer role now that Taylor Rogers got traded. But how likely do you think Duran is to get the closer's role and pay off for those early bidders? I think it's likely Duran's the closer. The, the question is, it, it's kind of when will he be closing? My, my guess is that he'll be closing by some point in the middle of the year. Uh, so what makes that risky in a league like TGFBI, where there's no IL slots, it means that if you stash someone like Duran, you're kind of using him as one of your, your bench plays. Because unless you have like a, a really bad week with your starting pitchers where you know there are multiple pitchers who have bad matchups, you're probably not starting Duran if he's not going to get saves. So this year too, you know, once again, as we know, you know, COVID is is rearing its ugly head. There have already been a few COVID IL stints. Um, so it leads to situations we, we've all seen this in TGFBI and NFBC that that bench gets gets filled up fast. Like my bench already, my TGFBI, I've got like three or four players who are not available. So Duran could work out, um, and I like him as as a play for later this year. But I also feel like he's a better stash in leagues like Tout or Labor, where you have those IL slots, and you know if somebody is hurt, you can just put them on the IL, and those IL slots are unlimited. And speaking of Taylor Rogers, he gets traded to San Francisco. Apparently, he's going to be the closer there. He only went for twenty two units in Labor NL out of to, uh, I think they have a hundred hundred unit limit. How does calibrating bid levels differ when you're talking about only leagues versus mixed leagues? Um, well, there's only so many shots at premium talent in an only league. So when a top player like Rogers is traded over, it, it's worth breaking the bank. So honestly, I was a little bit surprised he didn't go for more. Um, in mixed leagues, you generally want to pick your spots and spread the wealth. And unless you have a really special circumstance, like kind of keep your bid no more than 15 to 20% on any of your budget, on any player, um, there's obviously exceptions. Um, now, one key difference between labor and these other leagues is labor's only got, not only is only 100, it doesn't have $0 bids. So I think there, you need to take some care in not blowing through your budget because particularly in the only leagues, if you run out of budget, you're not going to have much of a bench and you can't do much. So something else to add about labor before we move off of this. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, Patrick, but we had a special like kind of preseason like auction draft for the the players. I heard about um, this. Like, yeah. So that makes things challenging because a lot of people like already spent a good chunk of their money, like on, on those players. So they weren't starting out with a hundred. So I think that's part, also part of why Rodgers didn't go for more. I think in a normal year where everybody had 100 to start with, he goes for at least double that and, and maybe close to 50. Yeah, that was uh, the, the preseason bid for new players into the pool. That was your fab dollars you were spending. It wasn't a separate pool of money. 
That's correct. And, you know, we, we talked about it and asked Steve Gardner of USA Today if we could maybe have more fab to start with, but he, you know, he said no. So we all were starting um, with 100, with the exception of Derek Cardi, who I think got 101 because he had a couple of players where he got compensation for because they were free agents when we drafted and they signed in the American League. So he got a buck back. <laughs> Very generous. Uh, in the uh, only leagues that, I'm in the American League tout only, as we've discussed. And when A.J. Pollock got traded from the Dodgers to the White Sox, of course, there was anticipation that there would be quite a bidding frenzy. I ended up bidding 700 out of my 1,000, 701 actually, and I won. And there was a bit of discussion on Twitter with some people saying, I don't understand how you could bid that much. Now, I only beat Larry Schechter by 30 or so, and I beat Jeff Erickson, I think, by 70 or so. So I wasn't alone in in smashing a lot of money towards him. But in retrospect, when I was thinking about it, I really should have bid more because my rationale was I could save all this money for later in the year when guys cross over in the, at the trading deadline, but I'm only going to get them for two months. This guy I'm going to get for six months of the entire season, less injury time, which already started. But are we getting to the point, do you think, in depending on league format, but where it makes uh, a lot of sense to just spend really aggressively early because you get the advantage of the player on your roster for longer? Yeah, and I'd say yes, and I'd say particularly this year, because of what was happening with the trades, you know, and, and a lot of those trades were happening because free agency was so late. Like a team like the Dodgers had a need with Craig Kimbrell or a closer, so they went to the White Sox, they got Kimbrell. I think those trades usually happen like earlier in the winter. You don't see that many trades happen right before or right at opening day. So in a situation like this, certainly, and I was in a, I'm in an AL only league where, it's a hundred, not a thousand, but it's similar to tout. We have zero dollar bids, and I, I did the same thing. You, or I did the same thing. I think it was Jeff or Larry did. I, I bid sixty eight out of my hundred on Pollock. He went for seventy one, and I'm kind of in the same position. I'm, I'm scratching my head and wondering if I should have bid more. And I, and in the NL counterpart to that league, I bid ninety four on someone we're going to talk about later. You know, same thing, zero dollar bids, Shawmanaya. If you have $0 bids, that's the other piece too. It's it's not fun to not have any fab and kind of like miss out on everybody, but you can always get people. Like there there's you're almost never going to be a situation where you won't be able to get like somebody with your with your fab. I like the $0 bids and I wish that they hadn't dropped uh, the uh second price plus 1. Oh, angle. The, oh the Vickery? The yeah, Vickery I, method. I like I I miss Vickery too. I, I Vickery has used to help me out a lot and now I just feel kind of sheepish when, you know, you, you bid like 450 on somebody and the next person, you know, bid like 100 and you're like, ah, you know, I, I clearly overbid. <laughs> yeah, clearly. But I was talking about my bid with my wife and she asked me a few questions about what was going on. And then she, then she said, and this is not with any preparation beforehand, why would you not move the price down to $1 more than the second place bid? Because nobody in an, in a real live auction would go, that guy bids six fifty. I bidding seven hundred and one. At that point, when you're that high up, you would bid in dollar increments or maybe three dollar increments, not fifty or sixty dollars at a time. It just makes way more sense to me to do victory. But for some reason, most people don't seem to like it as much as I do, or you, for that matter. Yeah, no, I, I think some people just like the certainty of of the uh, you know of having the bid be the bid. Um, I mean, there are, you know, I don't want to get too wonky here and away from fantasy baseball, but I mean, there are valid reasons like in 
like the business world to have like what they call blind bids where, you know, you bid something and that's the price and, you know, they don't bring it down. But, you know, that often, often that system does benefit the seller. And since there's no real seller here, I kind of agree with you. It doesn't really make sense to to have that system where the the winning bid isn't like the second highest bid plus one. Or you could consider that maybe all the other guys in the league are the seller combined, and that's why they like uh, they like the blind bidding system. Because if you don't win, then you can be sure that the maximum amount of fab got siphoned out of the uh, fab pool for later on, which it wouldn't be right. if if it was reduced by fifty or sixty units. In in my case, so maybe there, the whole field of auction theory is really interesting. But when you start reading it, guys have won Nobel prizes trying to analyze yeah, oh, how, oh, yeah. how this works so it's oh, it's, it's it's very, very complicated yeah. yeah it's very complicated i mean it's like the what we do you know here is is much less complicated but yeah the the, the broader field of it you're right is is like even when i first read about vickery it, it kind of made my head spin and i i have a friend who's like an accountant and very smart and you know i was explaining to him he's like this makes no sense and i found exactly what you were saying i found like a very technical explanation from like a i don't think he won a nobel prize but he was like a prize winning economist and my friends like oh that that makes sense like what what he's saying i just wasn't thinking of it that way there's a professor here at the university in the city where i live who's a specialist also not a nobel prize winner but very smart and very focused on the whole uh, idea of auction mechanics and I actually contacted him and I said, you know, I'm, I play fantasy baseball. We use auctions. I wouldn't mind getting an expert's point of view. And he said, yeah, I'd be glad to. And I did an interview with him uh, over the phone. And inside of four minutes, I was completely lost. Like, you know, he's starting to talk about anticipated value of equity and stuff like that. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know, this is like sitting in Economics 100 in university, uh, which I actually enjoyed. But uh, it was it was really, really technical. And at the end of it, you know, talked to him for 40 minutes, and I, I was no wiser than when I started. Uh, but it, I thought it was worth a try, anyhow. In your analysis of Jurickson Profar, you said you didn't expect him to return to his glory days, 2018, 2019, when he was going 2010. But you thought there might be some sneaky value at a 17-unit bid. Where's the sneaky value in Jurics and Profar? Well, for one thing, in TGFBI, that's like, you know, a little under 2% of the budget. So it, it's a, the price is right for sure. So if he sticks as a starter and can hit 20 to 25 home runs, um, he could provide similar value to Owen Miller, who, you know, was everybody, who we, I've mentioned twice now, was everybody's fab darling and costs a lot more. I think Profar is an example of a post-type player who's fine. He's not going to win you his league by himself, but could very much give you reliable production at his best. And there's just as much chance that he breaks out and exceeds expectations as Miller does. I, I think we get lost sometimes in this idea that you know a, a player who's has been around for a while like Profar can't get any better, but he certainly can. And you know Profar is is still relatively young. It's interesting too that the idea that we're looking for. Uh, any player that we draft to get better. But in the case of, a, of an established veteran like Profar, he's not getting better. He's returning to a state that he's already proved he can achieve, which Owen Miller, for all of his uh, current heroics, has not done. He has never proved that he's a yeah. quality hitter or a quality I, performer in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to knock Miller. I, I actually like Miller. I think Miller could be a really solid like contributor. It's just more the way people were valuing him you know, off of like two weeks versus valuing Profar off of, again, like like two weeks where, 
outside of the average, I don't really see much of a difference. And, you know, I, I think Profire might actually have a slight, slightly higher power ceiling. And you're, you're valuing Profire on two weeks this year and, you know, 80 weeks in, in past years. So you, it's the same kind of principle, I think, that goes to guys like Dave Potts, who really appreciates what he calls old, boring veterans in the draft process. Because everybody looks past them to the shiny new toy and says, oh, I want that guy because he could do something. And they eschew right. picking a guy who has done that thing and sometimes fairly recently. So I think that's interesting. You also said San Francisco outfielder Elio Ramos was intriguing. How so? Well, he's a power speed prospect and you know he's never been able to tap into his pull power. Um, so this spring and, and in the offseason, he spent some time reworking his swing and what he was doing was using more of his legs as opposed to his upper body. Now, if you've seen enough prospects, you, you know the ones that use their upper body, no matter how strong they are, uh, they're only going to hit the ball so far. Um, he has the athleticism to be a double-digit home run steal player. Um, the Giants quickly demoted him, but I, I think he'll be back pretty soon. Your baseball prospectus colleagues, Mark DeLucci and Mark Berry, had a call-up report on Ramos that said something I found interesting. They called him a somewhat enigmatic prospect over his minor league career because he's been good enough to justify continued promotions without ever putting together a fantastic enough season to significantly change industry perceptions. I think this is interesting because per- when it comes to prospects, perceptions are a big part of their uh, of, of their attractiveness for fab bidders. How much opportunity do you think gets created by prospects like this? Good enough to get promoted, good enough to stay quite young for the level, but not so good that anybody ever really notices. I think there's some opportunity here. It, it primarily exists in the leagues we've been talking about, the deeper mixed leagues and the mono leagues. Um, because there, Ramos can provide enough value um, to stick and, and justify keeping on the back end of your roster and even keep him in like a week where he's not doing much. Um, and he won't cost much fab because there's not hype. Um, really, and you, you hit on this on the last part of this question, um, Patrick, most of the opportunity comes because with few, very few exceptions, rookies are a grab bag. Like think of Jared Kelnick last year, for example, who was, was really hyped. Um, so the initial initial risk profile, you know, meaning right away, right here at the beginning, with someone like Julio Rodriguez compared to Elio Ramos is much narrower than people think. And, and that, that's where sometimes on our prospect brain, we think about the career of this player. So many people think about dynasty and it's like, well, obviously in a dynasty league, I want, I want Julio Rodriguez over Ramos and um, they'll be silly not to. But in one year league, I still want Rodriguez, but the, the gap between them is closer than a lot of people make it out to be. The other thing that gets a lot of fab bidding usually is guys who move up from setup roles to closer roles. Daniel Bard drew some aggressive-ish bids in TGFBI in a range from about 25 to 130 or so out of 1,000. The average winning bid on Bard was 74, which is not insignificant. What was your opinion on the attractiveness of Bard now, for now, the closer in Colorado? So I, I, my bids on him, and I, I bid on him almost everywhere, were probably in the 40s and a th- like, or somewhere in that range in a $1,000 league. So I wanted him, but I didn't want him nearly as much as nearly everyone in all my other leagues. I was like, well, I'll, I'll go after him, but I'm not going to you know, go, go that high. Um, I mean, he's attractive while he's closing, but we also know with Bard, he has a track record. He's closed before. There, there's typically an ERA whip penalty that makes him a liability and in standard mix and even in deep mix. 
and we've seen him kind of fall off the map. Now, the positive about Bard, I feel last year people looked at him and said he was bad, you know, he stunk, but he was really he was okay for four months. It wasn't until like after the All Star break where the wheels came off or started coming off, and then in August, and I think it was even September, uh, the Rockies looked elsewhere. So Bard could be fine. Um, just the kind of picture where I think the reason I only want to bid about 4% of my budget is if things go south, I don't want to feel attached to him. I want to feel like, okay, you, know, you got me a few saves. It's it's time to move on. I took David Peralta in my TGFBI in the reserve rounds, pick 406 if I remember correctly. I was surprised he was available at that point. He was penciled in as a third slot hitter playing the outfield full-time in Colorado. I know there was some injury risk. But he's turning up now as a fab player with a bid range 3 to 71, an average winning bid of 35. What were people missing at draft time that they're realizing now? Well, I don't think this is a thing about Peralta specifically, but more about the way people construct their teams. Uh, drafters are more likely to swing for the fences with their reserve picks in, in drafts like this than they are to take a boring, like stable regular like Peralta. It doesn't mean they won't take anyone like Peralta, but it means they'll, they'll typically populate the reserve list with like at least two minor leaguers. Um, something I've noticed too is people, we, we kind of talked about this with Bard. Um, people have started taking close like they've started taking closer speculation in the back end so those things combined have made it like kind of push players like peralta off entirely he wasn't even taken in my tgfbi now that I, I go and look at it um now the other side of this is injuries put fantasy managers very quickly in a position where they have to pick someone up like peralta and jettison one of those rookies so i that, that's the dynamic i see here He's hitting 216 the last time I checked with one home run and one other RBI. How likely is it that anybody who thought anything positive about Peralta was just wrong? Well, I mean, that could be wrong. He's, he's getting up there. I think he's, he'll be 35 in August. Um, I do think that um, he should be fine, but really fine for him is probably about 10 to 12 home runs uh, with a 260 average or so on a really bad team, or at least a team with a bad offense with fewer run and RBI opportunities and elsewhere. Um, he was kind of just above replacement level last year in 15 team mix. So I think he's okay. And I think where you got him is, is perfectly fine. He's a nice player to have as a fill in. If you have injuries and you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to, you know, blow fab again and again and again on marginal outfielders, but you know, we just have to kind of like level set what we're expecting. Another phenom uh, in Cleveland, uh, in addition to Owen Miller, of course, Stephen Kwan, who had just a ridiculous start to his tenure this year uh, in Cleveland. I did a comment here on Baseball HQ Radio last week saying the Kwan deal is a fun story, and it would be nice if his small ball style kept him in the majors. But how realistic is it, do you think, that we can expect the small ball game will keep him in the majors? I mean, it, it could happen, but the, the window is narrower for him than it would be for you know, a player with more power. So, you know, I, I kind of went back and looked at this. So in 2014, there were 24 outfielders who hit fewer than 15 home runs and qualified for the batting title, which is a little over 500 plate appearances. Last year, there were only eight. So another problem I think Quan has is he doesn't have a lot of speed like his, his teammate Miles Straw. So only five outfielders in 2021 played regularly who hit fewer than, than 15 home runs and stole fewer than 10 bases. Um, and they were Charlie Blackman, Michael Brantley, Peralta, we just talked about, um, Pavin Smith, and Alex Verdugo. Um, so the, the thing for Quan is he's going to have to probably hit 290 or better. 
if he can do that, I think he'll have a place in a major league lineup, even if he's only hitting eight to 10 home runs. Um, if that average slips at all, it's there's a good possibility he's a fourth outfielder. The Guardians might like the on-base percentage. He draws a ton of walks. I forget what the numbers are, but I think he was drawing more walks than and strikeouts in the minor leagues, and I think that has largely carried over. So that makes him, if you're Cleveland and you're pinching your pennies, not a bad option in that first or second slot at the top of the order to run around the bases and, and score runs for you, but he doesn't have the speed for it. And in a way, you also don't like to have a guy with zero power basically taking up, uh, especially the two hole. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's really, yeah, that's the thing too, is walk rate right now is 19%. So, I mean, obviously if he can keep up a 19% walk rate, he can hit 250 and it won't matter that much. It's, it's just that it's more likely he'll settle in at like nine, 10, 10% somewhere in there, which is still good. You know, I'm, I'm not knocking Stephen Kwan. I like him as a player. And I, li- I personally like players like this. I hope he succeeds. I, I just think I kind of agree with your point, like based on that lack of, of game power or, or raw power from a scouting perspective, it is a little bit tougher for him than it would be for, for somebody else. Here's an open-ended question for you. Where will the big bucks be going this weekend in the fab runs? Well, I mean, it's always guesswork, but I, I just kind of went and looked at the the CBS ownership percentages. So um, the two players that come to mind are jo- Josh Stalmont. Um, Scott Barlow got a save, but a lot of the, the rumors out of Kansas City, and a lot of people like kind of look at the, this thing. Stalmont is going to be the closer, and he actually has uh, picked up a save or two as well. So, yeah, it, it seems to be that's the way Kansas City's heading. And then the other player who I think will pick up a bunch of big bids is is Taylor Ward. Um, it sounds like the angels are going to start ward. Uh, once Mike Trout is, is healthy, um, ward is still going to get regular at bats. He's off to a fast start and he kind of fits the Jared Walsh model. People are cynical of, of, uh, ward, but same thing happened with Walsh where people looked at the PCL numbers, looked at his age, said he couldn't do it. And Walsh was really good. I don't think ward will quite be that good, but I, I think he'll be a pretty productive player. I kind of hope he does because uh, I have Tyler Wade on on one of my fantasy rosters, and every time I look at a at a box score, I kind of have to look twice because usually they're hitting one after the other. Tyler Wade, Taylor Ward, and you know you kind of have to look twice. I think it's just curious that they have two guys with such similar names, if nothing else. And you find your entertainment where you can. Now, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, and Mike. Last week at the Prospectus site, you ran a story about model portfolios for fantasy how did that work um so what we do every year at baseball prospectus is we put together um i put together my bid limits for al nl and and 15 team mix and the writers are are fantasy writers take the 15 team mix bid limits and they put together like kind of a mock team using a 260 dollars salary cap using your typical five by five rosters and, and categories one player ended up on five of your colleagues' model portfolio rosters. Who were they, and what was your analysis of how that worked? Um, so it was it was Joe Adele. Um, it's funny we're just talking about the Angels outfield because at the time I was concerned the Angels were going to have a logjam in the outfield, and that final bid update I published happened right before the Angels uh, DFA Justin Upton. Um, it's kind of weird. It turned out I was sort of right, just not about the Upton part of it. Um, Adele has been playing, but I, I still have some of the same concerns that when Mike Trout comes back, Adele's going to wind up in the platoon. 
Yeah, everybody's been waiting for Joe Adele for a long time. I had him a couple of years ago as a speculative guy, and it didn't work out. And it's interesting that if a guy doesn't work out in general, I think fantasy owners are pretty willing to give him a second chance. But if if he didn't work out and he was on your roster, I think you're just less likely to give him that second chance. Yeah, there is something psychological about that I've noticed. And I've often noticed where a player like his third or fourth year that's when you get the bargains. You've got like like three people in your league who are like, nope, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> <laughs> Once bitten, twice shy. Yeah, and, and there's no reason for it. I mean, oftentimes these guys are very young when they make the major leagues and they, they yeah. struggle and we think, oh, this guy's a bum. But Major League Baseball is hard and we, we, should, uh, we should account for that, I think, a little better than we do. Uh, five players ended up on three rosters at your re- recommended bids and one of them was the Japanese import Seiya Suzuki. Your analysis said you chickened out on him at first. Uh, he's been terrific, of course. How did your thought process evolve? Well, I did get him in a couple places, but I, I kind of wish I had him like almost everywhere. Uh, so initially, I was hedging my bets with him just based off the low or, well, I guess, high ADP early. I figured I didn't really need to rank him in the top 125 to get him. And I did get him in TGFBI at, at 169 overall. Um, once I saw his price jumping up in labor, tout mixed, and, and some of the main event leagues, I moved him up thinking it would give me the wiggle room I needed, but I noticed that there were some people who were even more aggressive on him. So given his early performance, I think looking back, I probably should have had him like even higher, like kind of in that like Christian Yelich, like Cody Bellinger grouping of outfielders. I think I'd rather have Suzuki, and I'm not even just saying this with hindsight, I think I'd rather have Suzuki than, than either of them. Your recommended price limit on Matt Chapman was just five, and this is using 260-unit standard uh, auction levels. Despite BP's own Axe projection valuation system having projected Chapman for a season value of eight, uh, Baseball HQ, for those interested, projected him at about 10, and uh, ATC Rotographs about six. So you were behind everybody, basically. What don't you like or didn't you like about Matt Chapman? So my, my model tends to reward or penalize players for, for batting average more than other models or systems. Um, so Chapman's 218 average going back to 2020, and that includes this year too, where he's, he's doing okay, is fifth lowest among qualifiers. Um, I know third base is a difficult position to fill, but one, one mistake I made in 2021 was loading up on far too many bad batting average hitters, and I wanted to avoid that mistake this year. On the pitching side, 13 starting pitchers made two of your model rosters. Among them, one guy you said in hindsight you wished you had rated a smidgen higher, not unlike Suzuki. Which pitcher was it and why? Um, It was Alec Manoa. Um, So I'm typically reluctant to to push the younger arms too high up in my rankings, but every time I see Manoa, and maybe up there in Canada you see him more than I do, he, he just blows me away. Um, Like, he's poised. I mean, he's got great stuff. He's got excellent command. And even the, the the build looks like it's going to hold up. I mean, I know with pitchers, you, you never know anybody could get hurt. Um, I've been trying better to be better to be more aggressive about young pitching when when they're, it's really talented. I think Manoa fits that. I think I should have had him rank a little higher. I agree with you. And the thing that I found was in all the leagues where I was interested in Alec Manoa, I didn't get him in any of them because as interested as I was, I thought everybody else was overly interested, like into the 20s in in auction or salary cap type style of drafts and sort of seventh, eighth round in, in straight drafts. I just thought that was too much to pay 
based on the risk. And I understand. I've, I like Alec Manoa a lot. I like watching him pitch. He's very enthusiastic, for one thing. He's one of those happy-go-lucky type guys, which makes you think maybe he's not going to you know, succumb to the pressure as readily as the other guys for whom it's a life-and-death kind of proposition. But, yeah, I missed out on Alec Manoa, too. And, of course, now I regret it, considering some of the pitchers I took instead who haven't been very good this year. Uh, Mike, this has been very interesting so far. We'll take a break, got to do some news coverage, and then we'll finish our discussion in a few minutes. Right, sounds good. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick with the National League News, Matt Beagle with the American League News next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Buyer's Guides columns, starting pitcher analyst Stephen Nickrand looks at pitchers he thinks you should hold on to, despite some very slow starts, including Kevin Gosman and Walker Bueller. And our bullpens analyst Doug Dennis looks at early leverage situations of five teams, including Detroit, Kansas City, and San Francisco. In the Big Hurt column, injuries analyst Matt Cedarholm looks at injuries in Houston, Oakland, and Detroit. In our speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at some snap judgments based on Baseball HQ's quality of batted balls metric, including Yuli Gurriel, Matt Chapman, Gavin Lux, and Francisco Lindor. And those are just a few of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have our buyer's guides for hitters, starting pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column The Big Hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day. We have team depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and all kinds of other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in L.A. Andrew Heaney was off to a terrific start. And by all accounts, he's good for it. He made some changes in his uh, pitch delivery his mechanics and stuff like that. So he was off to a terrific start and uh, unfortunately had to be placed on the 10-day IL on Wednesday. Uh, some discomfort in his shoulder was the report that the Dodgers put out. Uh, this is not good news for Andrew Heaney nor his excited uh, fantasy managers, but what's the latest? Jock Thompson covered this. Uh, Andrew Heaney had pitched uh, 10 scoreless innings, 16 uh, strikeouts, three walks to begin the season, and now will be shelled for an indeterminate amount of time. Uh, the Dodgers have yet to announce a replacement rotation. Uh, no reason yet to change has already limited any pitch projection. Uh, as recent history suggests, the Dodgers could go any number of ways to replace Haney for now, including a Vulcan game or two. Uh, but the immediate names, long, long reliever Tyler Anderson, uh, eight innings pitched and earned run, eight strikeouts, no walks, 
seems to be the best bet to move into the rotation if Haney needs extended time off. Uh, Haney is roster. Anderson is roster worthy in most formats. No innings pick projection change is necessary here either. What about this uh, infielder, outfielder, Zach McKinstry, who was recalled to the active roster? Of course, he's not going to fit into the rotation, but why did they make that particular roster move? Well, McKinstry could get some infield, outfield utility time uh, while Gavin Lux is out. Uh, Lux is out with what's being described as, as minor back issues. And so McKinstry may get some time uh, while, while Lux is uh, unable to take the field. Another good news story was starting up in Washington where former ace reliever uh, Sean Doolittle, a left-hander, was going great guns as the closer in uh, in Washington. Now he's on the 10-day IL. They're calling it an elbow sprain, but boy, uh, this is two pitchers. We've had a shoulder, now an elbow, and that's exactly what fantasy managers do not want to hear. Yeah, those are the things you don't want to hear at all. Doolittle, has, uh, as you said, had been off to a terrific start. Uh, over 5.2 innings pitched, he struck out six, yielded just one hit. Uh, but elbow began to bark. MRI suggested he rest for about 10 days and then be reevaluated. So um, while he's pitching his way onto the radar screen of deep league managers, this news puts any thought of claiming him on hold. So just keep an eye on this one, but not somebody you want in your roster at the moment. The other component of this, Nick, of course, is who gets the savings in Washington with Sean Doolittle out? Well, it looks like two two possibilities right now at the moment. Tanner Rainey and uh, Kyle Finnegan both look like they're going to pick up some saves, and they are currently the back end of the bullpen in Washington. We'll have to see if that works. And for anybody who picked up Steve Sishik in Washington, thinking he might be in the mix after the slow start that the bullpen had there, it looks like he's been uh, aced out by Finnegan and Rainey, as you suggest. Right. At this point, uh, Sishik is gone. Rainey and Finnegan, uh, Finnegan in. Uh, might have another change within two or three weeks. You can never tell. Moving along, Alex Cobb was uh, off to a decent start as well. Boy, this is kind of a theme to this part of the show. Uh, Alex Cobb was off to a decent start. He's gone to the IL. Uh, Jock Thompson covered this in playing time today for BaseballHQ.com. What's the news on Alex Cobb? Yeah, no word yet on how severe the injury is, but Cobb, as you know, is, is injured uh, all the time, it seems, off and on, and no projected innings pitch change for now. We've already built some downtime into his limited projection because he's on the IL, it seems, uh, every every few months. Uh, no obvious replacement in the rotation at the moment. Long relievers Sam Long and Jake Junis both have Major League Baseball starting experience. Uh, Giants could also use one or both of them in conjunction with bullpen games. So we'll just have to wait and see how this, uh, how this uh, plays out. Right at pitcher, uh, Junior Marte was recalled from AAA Seattle. Uh, that's a fresh arm out of the bullpen, at least for the time being. In Cincinnati, boy, that Jonathan India was a real revelation last season, and his fantasy managers, I'm sure, were looking forward to a big year this season as well. Unfortunately, and this is starting to sound like a bit of a beating drum, Jonathan India also on the IL. Tom Kephart covers the Reds for baseball's HQ's playing time today. What's the story with Jonathan India? India has been sidelined for several days uh, with a hamstring problem. So the IL stand is retroactive to April the 15th. So maybe if the hamstring clears up, it shouldn't be too long before he's back, at least hopefully. Recently promoted uh, second base, third base, Leo Lopez seems to be taking the bulk of second base playing time uh, after utility player Brandon Drury was India's uh, initial replacement. Lopez is a light-hitting, high-contact hitter, unable to translate his high minor league uh, batting average to Major League Baseball, 
in a small 2021 sample. Brandon Drury is playing more third base than second base, with Lopez assuming second base duties. Uh, and his absence really is a major blow to Cincinnati. They're struggling anyway, and now his lineup uh, is missing his on-base ability and his power from the leadoff position. Uh, might make, if you're if you're streaming pitchers, uh, Cincinnati's always been someone to stream against. That might even be more true within the out. A rare shining light of good news uh, for the Reds and for this uh, segment <laughs> is that the Reds were able to activate Nick Senzel from the IL. Uh, playing time today, Tom Keppert on this story as well. Yeah, he's uh, has yet to return to the starting lineup since being activated at the time that this was this was written. But uh, Cincinnati deploying left-handed batter outfield TJ Friedel in the leadoff slot immediately after his promotion from AAA. Uh, Friedel's batting eye impressed in his short 2021 season ending cup of coffee, and he'll be profiled in daily call-ups column at Baseball HQ. Uh, so it'll be, be good to have Senzel back in the lineup. He may help replace some of that that uh, production that uh, is lost with India gone. Some of it, but not all of it, would be my guess. Boy, the Cincinnati Reds are really uh, going downhill fast this year, and certainly not much there to interest fantasy managers. Uh, the Atlanta Braves, however, a different story. They've had some uh, issues with their pitching early in the year, and they've tried to address some of it by recalling, here's a name, Tuki Toussaint. Tuki Toussaint, recalled from uh, AAA Burnett, uh, uh, and the Vascar uh, Inoa, Sent down after a bad start. Uh, I know it took the baseball world by storm in 2021, but had one of those incidents where he smashed his hand into a wall, broke his pitching hand last year, and didn't really get it back after he returned from the IL. And this year he's been bombed in two straight starts with 10 earned runs and 6.2 innings pitch. So his emotion was uh, was uh, not surprising. That likely solidifies Kyle Wright's spot in the Atlanta rotation. Wright has really been very good in his first two 2022 starts. And Sean Newcomb was sent down, uh, at least initially. Uh, we'll talk about Newcomb a little bit more since he's been traded since that happened. But um, after after seven hits and four walks and uh, five 2022 innings, the Braves had seen enough of Newcomb. So the guy was coming up, Tuki Toussaint. Several stints for the Atlanta. For, after four years, he'd made 49 appearances, including 21 starts, 4.46 XERA, 54 BPV. Uh, there might be something there. You know, this is a guy who's, who's uh, pitched well before, uh, never quite gotten totally on his feet, uh, but certainly someone to keep an eye on in Atlanta at this point. Might be worth a flyer. He has had some uh, pretty decent outings in the past four years, as you said, but a very inconsistent type of guy. So uh, don't roster Tuki Toussaint thinking that your pro problems are solved if you're having pitching issues on your fantasy team. Uh, Stephen Nickrand writes a couple of columns for BaseballHQ.com, Nick, and we really enjoy talking about them. He's the starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist and the batter's buyer's guide columnist. And in that latter role, he had a column this week called Early Observations, looking at some hitters who are interesting to him, maybe underperforming, maybe overperforming. Uh, one of those was Michael Franco. Michael Franco drafted as an afterthought in the few leagues where he was taken a 702 ADP Uh but uh, doesn't seem to be hitting his way into more at-bats, a 687 OPS and 37 at-bats, but has really excellent batted ball metrics at this point. 94.6-mile-per-hour exit velocity, 10.3% uh, barrels. He could be worth a look in very deep leaves if you need a corner infielder. Uh, sounds like he's off to a little bit of a slow start, but he could, in fact, turn things around given those, those batted ball metrics. 
Just a cautionary note, though, there's a lot of people who believe that average exit velocity is not a particularly good metric for batters. What you're looking for is maximum exit velocity because it's a better indicator of the ability to drive the ball. But there are are those other metrics that you mentioned. Another player, and I don't think there's any doubt about how this guy's got off to a terrific start, Japanese import Seiya Suzuki for Chicago. Boy, he looks like he belonged right from the start. Yeah, he doesn't have is having no difficulty transitioning into Major League Baseball. Uh, batted ball quality has been elite. A 92.7 miles per hour exit velocity, 25% barrels. Uh, lofting the ball really well, 19.3 launch angle. Uh, plate discipline has been very good in aggregate. 24% walk rate, 68% contact rate, which is a little bit lower than you might like, but a 1.0i. So so far so good for Suzuki until the pitchers adjust to him. It'll be interesting to see if he can continue the kind of production he started with. It will be, but the metrics augur well. You know, he, he was a good hitter in Japan. We all know that. And uh, the question was, could he bring it over? And as you said, he's uh, made a seamless transition into Major League Baseball, if we look at it. And he's an exciting player as well. He seems to do everything well, defensively, offensively, uh, a lot of people were wary about taking Seiya Suzuki in this year's drafts, but those who did are patting themselves on the back, I'm sure. Uh, oh, you, you mentioned a moment ago Sean Newcomb had been traded after an inauspicious start. Uh, he went to Atlanta, uh, from Atlanta to the Cubs, and they get back Jesse Chavez. This doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but what do you make of it? Well, you know, it's one of those things where, where Newcomb had been designated for assignment, so if they could get something back for him, it probably was worth doing. Um, he could settle into a long-term bulk relief role, uh, similar to the one that Chavez had filled for the Cubs, uh, could be used in other roles. Uh, Newcomb was a minor league starter, tried as a starter earlier in his major league career before moving to the bullpen. And at this point, the Cubs rotation is currently shorthanded, uh, with Wade Miley and Alex Mills, uh, on the, on the IL. So I'll be interesting to see how the Cubs decide to use Newcomb. Uh, Jesse Chavez returns to Atlanta where he had considerable success in, success in 2021, although not quite as good as his 2.14 ERA might indicate. XERA was 3.76, uh, strikeout minus walk rate 19%, BPB 113. So pitched well for Atlanta last year. The Atlanta bullpen is fairly deep, so we don't know how often he'll get to pitch uh, in high leverage situations. But uh, uh, an interesting move, certainly. The, uh, the Cubs got someone that they might want to use at some point while they're they're hurt, and Atlanta seems to get something back that could be worthwhile in their bullpen. Chavez's expected ERA, you mentioned in Atlanta, 376. It's not great, but uh, these days it's also not that bad. Uh, it could be playable in some fantasy formats. Uh, not, I don't think in 15-team mix he's going to be a factor, but you might want to look if you're in some kind of, uh, in, uh, some kind of league with... Uh, very deep uh, benches like a 12-team single league or a 24-team mix might be a play. Uh, also wanted to ask you about something that caught my eye. Arizona has called up Matt Davidson. And I read this and I thought, Matt Davidson, that can't be the same Matt Davidson I remember from years ago. I thought he played, you know, when, it, when I first looked at it around 2005. But apparently he's been a little more modern than that. And it's just my memory that's fading. Well, not, not much more modern than that. In 2017, 2018 with the White Sox, he had 26 and 20 home runs respectively. But uh, aside from those two seasons, uh, hasn't done much. Uh, even during those power outputs, he offered little aside from home runs, a career uh, 292 on base average, no stolen bases, 
This year he has a 1.426 OPS, uh, eight homers lead the minors. Uh, so he has started off extremely hot. Uh, the Diamondbacks have certainly been struggling offensively. It wouldn't be a surprise for him to get some playing time at the infield corners or at DH. Well, as I said, Nick, Matt Davidson did have a small spot in my memory, and I'm sure I've had him on a team or two in his uh, brief career. And it was just as you said, I was always hoping for power. There was nothing much more in the profile to suggest that uh, Matt Davidson was going to be any kind of terrific fantasy contributor. So if he hits home runs that's and gets some RBIs, I guess that's about all you can expect. Yeah, I, I, I think so. You know, if you're if you're really hurting at corner infield, this guy is currently leading the minors at home runs, and so uh, while he stays hot for a week or two, might be worth uh, worth having in your lineup. But uh, you know, I don't like it in, in an on base league. I don't like a two ninety two on base average at all. So he's certainly not someone I'm going to look at. A two ninety two on base percentage and a relatively low batting average as well. So the question is, how many at bats is he going to get, or how many plate appearances is he going to get, and how much will those plate appearances or at bats hurt your team? While you're hoping for some home runs to benefit in that department, it's a it's a gain and loss or a benefit and risk sort of situation. You might get you know ten home runs for the season, but you also might catch yourself a, a guy who pulls your uh, team's batting average down by two points. Yeah, very definitely. So it's you know it's one of those. It depends on how badly you need the home runs. If if uh, your league is really tight in them, maybe it's worthwhile. Uh, probably not someone that I'm going to look at immediately. No, and these days, if you don't look at a guy immediately, you're probably not going to get him because uh, the sharks are in the pool all the time. Every league I'm in, uh, you look at at somebody and you think, I'll wait a week. No, that doesn't work. (laughs) If you don't get him this week, you're not going to get him at all until he flames out and you get him four weeks from now. Right, absolutely. That's certainly true. I mean, guys are getting grabbed very quickly, and so uh, there isn't much time to to, uh, uh, watch and wait Uh, I've taken more of a strategy of this guy looks like he could do something. I'm going to stick him on my bench for a week and see if he's worthwhile rather than waiting to pick him up. Some of the leagues I play in, uh, Nick, you can't do that. If you if you take a guy through the fab process, you have to put him on your active roster at least for the first week. And that therein lies the trouble because sometimes you would like to put him on your reserve just because you want to reserve because your guys are playing pretty well. But the only way you can pick up a Matt Davidson is to put somebody on your bench that you'd really rather have active more than Matt Davidson, and so he has to go by the boards. Yep, very definitely in that that situation. I agree with you. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League news uh, this week, and we'll catch you again next Friday. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, and with Ray Murphy on a well-deserved vacation, here's a blast from the past. It's Matt Beagle, a Baseball HQ columnist, and he used to be the American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. Matt Beagle, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. You used to be the American League beat reporter here at the show. When was that, and how long did you do that? Do you remember? I tried to remember. I want to say it was about 07 to 011 where I did it on a weekly basis. Uh, really enjoyed it. Just my schedule got busy as my kids got older and 
times change with how for us to get together. It was just very hard to make it work. Well, it was always great fun, and uh, you certainly always had terrific information, and I appreciate you stepping in for Ray this week. It's going to be fun uh, kind of going back to the old days. It's like old-timers day at Yankee Stadium or something <laughs> like that. They're going to announce our names, and we'll come daughter out on our with our walkers. Uh, what are you doing these days as far as fantasy baseball goes? I do a lot of Stratomatic. Um, and some NFBC draft champions leagues, they fit in my schedule a little better. So that's what the focus of my time is now. I don't, not quite as broad base as I used to be. I've kind of focused in what I like and, and, uh, actually got my old baseball cards out a little bit here. Oh, so. uh, how has that market developed over the last little while? Uh, it's, it's, the economy is very strong. People are spending lots of money. And as the, uh, baby boomers get older, they want to relive their childhood and baseball cards and some classic Stratomatic games are one way to do that. Well, speaking of Stratomatic, you're writing Stratomatic-based columns, I know, I've know i noticed, for the last couple of years for Baseball HQ. Yeah, I've played that for about 45 years now, and uh, hopefully, I think I know about as much as anybody about the game, there's still opinions. And uh, we try to give our readers in-depth analysis, not just surface things, and really get into what makes a winning team and what makes a good cards. And the funny thing is so many things trail that we were the first to talk about on base percentage. Cause you could see the walks on the card that weren't an out. We were bullpenning long before bullpenning was, was popular. Uh, closers and waiting were all things that we did at Stratomatic lefty righty splits. Uh, we're all things that have been adapted since lineup construction differences where you buy the bat, best guy at the top of the lineup for more at bats. So it's interesting how that all how major leagues has followed a little bit. Did the Stratomatic strategy ever include the opener? Like throw a guy for an inning and then bring a, bring a guy in for the, after the first that's time something we That's something we did not do because we felt that was sort of unethical. Um, you would just take your starter out early. We realized quickly that per batter, relievers are more effective than starters. And that's still the best, cheapest way to build a Stratomatic contender. They still are the cheapest in most Stratomatic drafts to get good bullpen arms. And per batter, they're much better than a starting than starting pitchers are overall. So it's a quick way to get your team better quickly. Well, in my extra innings commentary at the end of the show, I'm going to be talking about an article I read recently by Russell Carlton. He's the researcher that used to go by the name Pizza Cutter, and he published all kinds of really interesting articles about baseball based on research. And the article that I read just recently had to do with uh, the evolution of pitcher usage and how the uh, pitcher used to be sent the the ancient model, if you will, or the traditional model was you sent your starter out there, he pitched until he couldn't pitch anymore, and then you took him off the mound, hopefully just one batter too early instead of uh, whatever, and then bring in your relievers to mop up or, or get the rest of the outs. And gradually the evolution, he said, has been to a model where every pitcher goes into the game with an end limit already set, and they tell him. You're going to be in there for four innings. You're going to be in there for 15 outs. You're going to be in there for three times through the order, whatever it is. And the, the knowledge allows that pitcher to optimize how much effort he puts in over the time allotted to him. The, fl- the flaw, according to the article, was if you're a starting pitcher with no fixed endpoint, then you don't know how hard to throw in the first inning because you don't know if you're going to be pitching five innings or eight innings. And so mm-hmm. there's a calibration problem. And he said that's gone now because all the pitchers know – when they walk onto the field, they know what their job is going to be and when it's going to be over so they can go as hard as necessary. And that, he said, has caused an, a huge evolution in pitching in general. Yeah, it's really changed. And as a former pitcher myself, I was always, you want to go as many innings as you could. 
If you didn't throw hard like I didn't, you could throw all day. But these guys who really throw hard extend that effort, and when they try to go that second inning, they just can't because they are focused for that inning. Yeah, uh, what right. I think is also interesting on the flip side that I really don't like from a fantasy perspective is these hitters with schedules days off. Uh, I, I think if someone's healthy, they should be able to play a game of baseball, other than catchers, obviously. But I, I think these scheduled days off are giving people a, a break when they don't need it. They still work out. They still do their, all their weightlifting and all their conditioning. Well, how about skip your weightlifting conditioning, actually play the game you're paid to play. And obviously if someone's slumping or if it's a bad matchup, I understand there's going to be a time you rest a guy, but just to give him a scheduled day off to me is using that same philosophy. And I don't really know if it's that effective. Certainly hurts us from a fantasy perspective because how are you going to get someone to three thousand hits again when they're only playing 140 games a year? Well, it also hurts the team. I think if you sit Vladimir Guerrero so that you can play San Diego Espinal or whatever, just just because you don't want Vladimir Guerrero to play that day, the, that hurts the team's capacity to win games, and as well as affecting, of course, Guerrero's impact on his uh, on his fantasy roster as well. I also I agree with you about this because I think that's a model that they borrowed from the NBA where they started, especially with older players, started saying, let's give, you know, a, a scheduled day off, especially if you're playing Sacramento or, you know, somebody uh, who's not that competitive. But basketball's a different game. They play it way more often at a way higher intensity level, and the the uh, physical challenges are different. Same with the hockey as well, you might, or football, for that matter. But uh, especially basketball, they just say, you know, you're LeBron James, you're 39 years old, let's you just don't have to go play tonight because we're playing Sacramento and we can win without you. But to transfer that to baseball in the same as a extension of the same idea seems ludicrous to me because the effort level in basketball is so much more intense and so much more focused in a short time. I've maintained this for years. I do not understand all the injuries in baseball. How many pulled hamstrings do you see in the NBA or football or hockey? How can those more intense sports result in so much fewer injuries. In baseball, guys are hurt all the time and, oh, they need a day off for this. A day. It's not that intense of a sport. You have to turn on your Jets, what, six, ten times a game maybe? Like, I don't understand how you can get hit by a 300-pound guy 30 times as a running back and you're okay, but in baseball you can't run down the first baseline hard because you might pull your hammy. There's got to be something that is not being done from a training perspective to build up the resilience of these players. And in the old days, it wasn't like this either. So are we weightlifting too much for bulk or people are too tight or not stretching enough? There's got to be an answer out there. To me, it's a huge money saver for the clubs. If they can keep their best players on the field, well, have designated runners next because they don't want a guy to pull his hammy or jam his thumb when he slides into second base. I just can't believe that baseball is that strenuous. You can't, we got to get him off his feet today. Well, they sit in between innings I've played softball and I'm not that sober. I play double headers every day in 95 degree heat. It's not, and then play the outfield. It is, yes, it's a little tired, but it's not that bad that you can't do your, your daily thing. And if you have an injury that's barking, yeah, give the guy a day off. But these scheduled days off, and why can't we build up their bodies for the resilience for the season? I think something you said may be critical in this discussion, and that is the movement in basketball and hockey is continuous. Whereas in baseball, most of it is spent standing around with occasional, uh-oh, and now if you're a center fielder, you've got to run at full full output 60 yards or, or 50 yards to try to track down a ball in the alley. And 
You're going from basically doing nothing to doing a lot instantly. And I think that's way more likely to cause injuries than if you're running all the time, like on a basketball floor, and every so often you have to run a little bit harder, but you're not going from zero to 80, you're going from 75 to 80 because you're running all the time as, as a condition of the game. How many days did Ichiro Suzuki spend on the DL? Very few. Because he stretched between every pitch. Yeah. He was out in the outfield stretching. If you were watching him. Yeah. No one's emulated that. And if that's the secret, then why aren't guys stretching in between pitches? Which, side note, Stephen Kwan reminds me so much of Ichiro at the plate. It's amazing. Uh, he's got, he looks like Ichiro up there to me. Yeah. Um, but all that stretching in between pitches, he did it every pitch. He was always out there stretching to stay limber and be ready, be prepared. No one has adopted that. I'll tell you, Lourdes Gurriel in Toronto does do it. He stretches okay. all the time out there, mostly his upper body. He's stretching his, uh, his, his throwing arm, and then he you know, does uh, kind of core rotations. I, he looks like he's emulating that up to a certain extent, and I think other guys do. But it may just be a case where when he does it, which isn't all the time, the camera focuses on him immediately. And look at Lourdes getting ready for the next play, you know, because there's mm-hmm. a certain amount of propaganda. It's a pretty in, easy uh, answer Yeah, well, to a really bad problem. You'd think. And another example, if you're talking about stretching, is... Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was taking yoga and doing stretching exercises back when he was playing for UCLA. And he lasted till he was 40 some odd years old in the toughest physical sport for my money in the world, which is pro basketball. And, uh, and he swore by it. He never lifted weights. He never did anything like that. It was all stretch, 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 because it's the connective tissue that breaks. Your muscles don't break. They, they, uh, they just keep working. But the tendons break, the ligaments break, and, and so forth. And I think that's important. As for uh, running backs, by the way, I think that might be an instance where they take the punishment and get up and keep going, but they pay for it 30 years later when they don't know their own names. So th- there, there is and Herschel that. Walker, speaking of running backs, Herschel Walker did ballet. Yeah. He was a, a famous ballet dancer. Yeah. Uh, not famous, not famous for ballet, but he did ballet as one of his training regiments. Yeah. And, and I think that makes a, an awful lot of sense. Uh, speaking of hamstring strains, Jose Altuve is out of the lineup. He's on the 10 day IL. He's put there on Wednesday because of a hamstring strain. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today at baseballhq.com. How serious is the injury? Well, it doesn't seem that serious. Most of them are day-to-day. They did put him on the IL. They didn't think he was going to have to go on the IL, so I don't think it's too bad. Um, the hardest part is nagging. You know, These injuries, how long do you sit out? Can you come back full speed, or are you going to uh, aggravate it again? And that's the big question. But uh, we dinged him about a week's worth of plate appearances until we learn more, but I don't think this is going to be a long-term one. And as you said, the other concern from a fantasy perspective is how much running is he going to do on the bases because the team might be worried, especially on a, a packed offense like the Astros. Hey, Jose, we don't need you to steal second. Just station to station, wait there until somebody hits a home run and drives you in. So if you drafted Jose Altuve expecting 20 bases or 15 stolen bases, you might not get them. Uh, who's going to play in Altuve's place while he's out? Well, it's going to be Aledmus Diaz offensively, and Nico Goodrum's a better defender. But the splits, especially on Goodrum, historically are, I mean, he's a horrible hitter against right-handed pitchers. Career, uh, it's 201, and last year it was 185 with a 263 on base. In 2020, it was shortened season, but 144. (laughs) You know, I mean, he just cannot hit right-handed pitchers, so they really can't go with him. Uh, full term and Diaz is, has always been productive as a hitter both against lefties and righties he just doesn't have the same range so I would look for Diaz to get a little more playing time and Goodrum being used more defensively um, another note on Altuve he really hasn't stolen 
17 bases since 2018. So if you draft him expecting steals, he's actually trying to hit more for power and running less. Although he did add two steals this year off the bat. Um, those were bonus to him in my mind. I thought it was interesting that Goodrum is a switch hitter. And he, he might be one of those guys who might benefit from a Cedric Mullins approach, which is to stop switch hitting and just hit from one side because he couldn't do any worse against right-handers hitting left. Oh, and it's every year. Sometimes splits vary from year to year. Stratomatic players know that. But he is every year. He cannot hit righties at all. Uh, he's a good guy to have on your bench. He plays lots of positions. He's got slow speed, little pop, but all his pops against right-handers. The Astros, Jock Thompson pointed out, also called up a prospect, J.J. Matichevich from AAA, but he looks like a corner infielder, first base type guy. Projects to be a reserve, like bench depth for a while. Uh, Altuve's out, probably go back to the minors right after Altuve comes back. The more important thing from fantasy perspective is that Altuve was leading off for the Astros as well. Who goes to the top of the order while he's out? Well, Jeremy Pena is probably the best candidate. You know, uh, he's in batting at the bottom of the order, but if you look on the minors, he had a 371 on base percentage uh, throughout his minor league career. So he makes sense. He's got a little speed, got a little pop. Young guy, they want to get some at-bats, maybe see more fastballs in that number one spot. And if that happens, you're going to see a lot more at-bats. I mean, over a season, moving from seventh and eighth to one is going to be 70 at-bats or so, 70 plate appearances, you're going to get extra. So we're only talking about maybe a short-term period here, but a few extra at-bats comes in handy, especially in those weekly leagues. Moving long out in Oakland, they put infielder Kevin Smith on the aisle on Wednesday. He hurt himself on Monday, uh, <laughs> a dumb, dumb kind of play. Uh, what happens with the A's and what's going on with Kevin Smith? Well, it shows you why you should never slide into first base. The only time is when you see the first baseman reaching for a bad throw and he's going to try a swipe tag. He's the only time you should ever slide into first base. Uh, he was in a walking boot after the injury. They put him on the aisle on Wednesday. It's a bone bruise, no breaks. But bone bruises can be a real uh, real nagging injury and really hinder you a lot. Um, so I don't know when he's coming back. Sheldon Noisy has been the hot pickup. He's hitting 368 now, but his expected batting average is only 258. He's got a 52% hit rate. So I don't think Noisy is the long-term answer. If you have to, you have to. He's, he is hot, but it's not skills-based. The A's also had a bunch of COVID IL replacements, I noticed, and one of them was infielder Nick Allen. Uh, who might get a look at some of Smith's plate appearances, but he's mostly a glove guy, so probably not much fantasy interest there either. Uh, Texas, some rare, shining good news, activated right-handed starter John Gray. Well, that shining good news turned Gray in a hurry because he uh, allowed four runs in five innings and then went on the DL, uh, the IL again with the MCL sprain. Um, so he thinks he's only going to miss one start. He's the one pitcher with Texas that you really might want to consider rostering. Now he's out of Colorado, although... He did just as well in Colorado as he did in road games when he played for the Rockies. Uh, his projected ERA is under four, and no other Texas starters can say that. He was throwing pretty well. Um, his expected ERA, again, right under four. Whip was about one. Opposing opponent batting average, about 194. But some bad luck hit him and uh, hit a blister issue the first opening uh, out opening day there with his slider grip. So we got to keep an eye on him. And leg problems can be you know, an issue. We know watching... Um, Zach Eflin for the Phillies, he struggled with leg issues. Uh, you know, those can affect, they affect all of your mechanics, your push off, your landing, how you twist when delivering the ball. So we want to watch that. And knee sprains can, can, can linger. So he says it's only going to be one start. It's just a sprain of the MCL, but we have to really watch that. 
And, of course, a sprain, when you're talking about a ligament, is a tear. It's a partial tear, and the more serious the strain, the bigger the tear until it tears right through, and then they call it a rupture or whatever. But the uh, sprain it seems to be a somewhat minimizing term for uh, what is actually a pretty significant injury. Meanwhile, Matt, the team made room for Gray on the roster by designating right-hander Greg Holland for assignment. He was the closer in a very dominant KC bullpen from 2013 to 15 won the World Series, and appeared in the World Series once. Is this the end of the line for a once-dominant closer in Greg Holland? I think so. That's a long time ago, and he really hasn't been that effective the last couple of years. Um, 771 ERA, his first five appearances, 1.5 whip. Uh, his ex-fifth was, was over nine. So, uh, so you know, sometimes relievers can discover a pitch or, or really rely on a pitch that they had before and try to reinvent themselves, but I would think he's he was released, and I don't Someone may take a, you know, Phillies are desperate for a bullpen. They may take a shot at him just because of his name, but I wouldn't expect anything uh, major from him. What do you think of Matt Bush as a dark horse? Oh, he's always had great stuff and he had some issues, health and otherwise. And all of a sudden he's got four inning pitched and five strikeouts, which is 11.3 strikeouts per nine, not walking anybody. Uh, I mean, it, it, 208 BPV, base performance value. I mean, if you're going to take a shot, he's worth a shot. You never know. I don't know how many save opportunities they're going to have in Texas, but he's a guy to look at. And, uh, again, at this at this stage of the game, there aren't many people on the waiver wires too early in the season, so you have to be looking out and uh, sometimes take a little risk on some of these guys. And Bush may be that person. Base performance value at BaseballHQ.com is kind of a combination metric that – links together all of the various individual metrics into a single score. And uh, 200, I think, is what we called the vintage Eckersley level, which is as good as it gets. And uh, as you said, Matt Bush currently at 208, which means he's uh, whatever he's doing, he's doing it right. It might be worth a speculative pick, as you said. Uh, Javier Baez came over to Detroit with a lot of fanfare to play shortstop at Comerica Field. Uh, they put him on the 10-day IL. He's got a problem with his thumb, I guess. Uh, Tom Kephart covering the story for Baseball HQ. What are the lineup effects for the Tigers with Baez out? Well, the lineup effect is Castro. It may be Harold. It may be Willie. Uh, neither one's that great, but at least Willie has some pop. And his, you know, his uh, 648 major league appearances, he does have 16 homers and nine steals, so at least he could do something. He's not really good, that great of a hitter, 248 expected batting average uh, in his career. Uh, not nearly as good as he played in the strike shortened season where he hit 349. And Harold's can hit the ball, put it in play, 289 average lifetime. But he's only hitting 211 so far. It's short time. But those two are going to kind of platoon. And maybe Willie has some upside, but uh, Harold probably not really. And we mentioned earlier about uh, Kevin Smith's injury being an indicator of why not to slide into first base. It could, it could be the case that uh, we need to start rethinking celebrations after walk-off hits and walk-off homers. Remember Kendris Morales, I think back in around 2010, broke his ankle when he was uh, mobbed at the plate uh, after a walk-off grand slam. Baez hurt his thumb in a celebration after he had a game-winning, uh, a game-winning single in, uh, in Detroit. Maybe they just need to tone all this stuff down. I mean, I'm all for enthusiasm and stuff, but I don't know how that kind of stuff happens. In Toronto, the Jays put left-hander Hyunjin Ryu on the 10-day IL. The dreaded forearm inflammation was the diagnosis, but what's the skinny on the move? Well, it's a, he's been trending downward for a long time. In 2020, he finished third in the Cy Young race. 
2021. He had a 326 ERA, 114 whip through July. And then he really faded with a 679 ERA and a 142 whip in August and September. He is 35 years old and uh, had been injury prone most of his career up until recently. So to see him injured again in a 1350 ERA, a 177 whip, uh, I don't feel good about this. And I've got him on a few teams. I knew it was a risk, but you hope maybe he'll return to form. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't look good because when you hear tightness, sorus, or inflammation of the forearm, that usually means something's wrong with the elbow. Yeah, Tommy John surgery often is preceded by some kind of forearm issue. Uh, the team activated left-handed reliever Ryan Barucki into Ryu's spot. He won't get into the rotation, but who might get Ryu's roster spot, assuming that he misses a, a few turns in the rotation at least? Well, it's interesting because as good as the top of the Toronto rotation is, they don't have a ton of depth. They'd like Nate Pearson to come back, who had an illness there preseason, and and hope that he could eventually step in there. But I'm not sure he's ready yet. So the most likely candidate is going to be Ross Stripling, who was one of those uh, baseball HQ darlings. He controlled the, the strike zone through strikes and got enough strikeouts and got by. But the last couple of years, he's not been nearly as good. Uh, he did have a 351 ERA and a 120 whip over four seasons with LA, but the last three seasons only a 506 ERA combined with a 133 whip and only eight strikeouts per nine innings. So uh, whereas it seemed like a great move when they acquired Stripling three years ago, he really hasn't performed that well in Toronto. And he's been in and out of the rotation. They used him as a long man. They used him as a kind of bridge reliever in the middle innings for starts that didn't go well, those kinds of things. I'd like Nate Pearson back. I've got him on a couple of rosters. And if nothing else, he can really fire the fastball. He's had some other issues going on. But let's hope Pearson comes back to shore up that Toronto rotation. Uh, speaking of rotations, left-hander John Means in Baltimore was tagged by a lot of touts coming into 2022, solid skills. And they fixed his right-handed hitter gopheritis by moving the fence back in Camden Yards by 30 feet and making it uh, 16 feet tall or something like that. If you're going to protect your right-handed uh, or your left-handed starters, that's how to do it, I guess. Uh, the O's had to put means on the 10-day IL. He's got a strain in his pitching elbows, the diagnosis probably even worse than the uh, forearm, and now they've shifted him to the 60-day IL, which is even worse. What do you think all of this means for means and for the Orioles? It doesn't mean anything good, I can tell you that. It just shows me once again, and this, these are not difficult to, things to understand for everyone. If you have a pitcher and he has value, trade him in the offseason. Don't try to wait during the season for his performance. A, he could perform poorly, or B, even worse, he could be injured and now worthless. They could have gotten a great package for him in the offseason. He's an excellent pitcher. Everyone knows it. So instead of moving the fences, they could have traded him and further bolstered their roster. Instead, they tried to throw him a little bit, and now you see what happens. I don't know who's going to take his place. It's not Marco Stiplon who they called up. Uh, he's not the answer. He's a bullpen guy. The guy might be in the bullpen in Keegan Aiken. Uh, he's a former top prospect who struggled out of the starting rotation, but this year in the bullpen, he's got a 15.5 swing strike percentage, 15.3 uh, strikeouts per nine innings. And he's even throwing the ball over the plate, 79% first pitch strikes. So he hasn't walked the guy so far. And so maybe Keegan Aiken is developing and learning something in the bullpen that he could maybe transfer to the rotation because Tyler Wells certainly isn't lighting it up over there either. That raises the issue that we talked about earlier, though. Keegan Aiken can get the job done in 
in shorter stints, two, three innings at a time. But when they say, oh, now you've got to go three times through the order and throw 105 pitches or 95 pitches or whatever it is, maybe that pinpoint control starts to fade. Maybe the stuff starts to fade. I wonder if Baltimore is going to find itself going to a an opener, bulk guy, kind of mixed approach because they just don't have enough starting pitching to get through enough games to, to be useful. Well, you'd hope they call up Grayson Rodriguez, their top prospect, uh, when he's ready, because that would really uh, put some energy with him and Adley Rutschman and get some people in the stands there in Baltimore and give them something to cheer for, because they've got two of the best prospects in, in the minors if they'd bring them up. Meanwhile, uh, Bruce Zimmerman is having, he's got nine shutout innings out of the gate. He's been doing very well quietly on the waiver wire. Probably nobody has him. I have on a couple of Stratomatic teams just as an innings filler. And uh, he's really gone crazy for him there and given two excellent starts and, uh, I said, hasn't given up a, a run all year. I'll, I'll I'll wait till he gets a few more than nine innings before <laughs> I, you know, cast my lot with Bruce Zimmerman. That's interesting. Minnesota uh, put Sonny Gray, right-handed starter, on the ten-day IL as a precautionary measure. They're calling it. That was last Sunday. Rick Green covers the Twins for Playing Time today. What's the latest on Sonny Gray? Well, the good news is they only expect him to miss one start, and and this is where I think using the the injured list and being cautious is a good thing. If someone's got an injury, something's tight, something's barking, that's when you do give them a day off. That's when you do give them a break now uh, in this season. And miss one start gives you somebody else a chance and gives him a chance to recover fully. There's nothing worse than playing a sport when you're injured. You want to know that you're full go, you're fully healthy to let it all hang out because you're not going to have the same performance if you're injured. He could be back on the rotation Wednesday for a home start versus the Tigers. And while he's out, they're just going to, they had a six man rotation. So they're just going to go with the traditional five man uh, by moving their other starters up a day. And then the off day on Monday should reset the Twins rotation back to a six man. We talked earlier about uh, Jose Altuve going to the IL in Houston. They also got bad news with their closer, uh, right hander Ryan Presley, placed on the 10 day IL. And you were just talking about leg injuries. Matt, uh, that's what it is here, knee inflammation, which I think he's had trouble with before. The team selected the contract of a left-hander, Parker Mushinsky, from AAA. Uh, Jock Thompson covering the story for playing time today. Uh, the key questions, how long will Presley be out, and who gets the save opportunities while he's out? They sounded pretty positive. The Astros said that it would be a short stint on the IL. Um, it was retroactive even, so he could be back as soon as this weekend. But Hector Norris is the person that they got from the Phillies. Uh, he's always had good skills. We didn't project a lot of saves, and with uh, Presley coming back, we didn't really adjust it too much. But Norris is the guy. He's appeared in a couple of games since then. They weren't save situations, but he hasn't allowed any runs or walks and only two hits in five and a third innings, a 16% swinging strike rate. So he's the guy they had signed as a free agent and would expect to step in. Um, watch Rafael Montero. He's never been – he's one of those all or nothing. He's actually off to a great start. And there's been some rumors that he might take off because he's got a 95 and a half mile average velocity, five great innings pitched off the bat, but he's only had three years and seven. He's had 44 innings pitched or more. And uh, he's usually had walk issues, 3.1 walks per nine and not a great strikeout rate, maybe a batter per inning. So he's, but he has closed before. So you might see some people move on him. He's probably the next guy in line if Norris can't fill the bill. Well, filling the bill is what exactly you did today uh, with Ray on vacation. I'm so grateful to you, Matt, for coming in and filling in, doing a great job, as I expected, based on five years of experience in the past. 
I do appreciate it. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Matt Beagle. Uh, I really don't do that much <laughs> off-season. I've been doing my own Stratomatic. Look under the alternative section of the website. You can see I did the points guide this year, the points guide draft league. I did a lot of Stratomatic articles. And usually that's where I pop up here or there on the alternative section of the Baseball HQ website. You got a Twitter deal going on or Facebook or Instagram? Or I have those a Twitter. I, th- I think it's Matt underscore Beagle, but I do about one tweet a year. So uh, be a very boring you. follow. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes if something really moves me that I really think I have something unusual to say, I'll, I'll tweet. But uh, mm-hmm. you can probably see all my tweets in about five minutes. if you. Uh, I think it's Matt underscore Beagle, I think. I don't even know what my handle is. <laughs> An indication that maybe it might not be your primary source of communication. <laughs> maybe you'll pick it up now that Elon Musk is getting involved with uh, maybe with Twitter. Maybe. It'll be much more exciting for everybody. Matt, thanks very much for doing this. I appreciate it. And I hope I get to talk to you again sooner than it has been since the last time. Uh, I hope so, too. And, and I hope you're wearing your Miguel Cabrera jersey that I let you win at the Arizona Fall League back in 2008 when I didn't outbid you with a minute to go. I have my Ryan Zimmerman jersey here, but it's not nearly as valuable as your autographed Miguel Cabrera jersey. That's right, and he's closing right in on 3,000 hits. I, I saw something about it the other day. He was actually, somebody was complaining about it. I don't remember. My wife told me about the story that Cabrera had got into some kind of online tiff with somebody about how he was going about 3,000 hits or whatever. I, I don't understand how people nowadays, you can look at a guy, a absolute first ballot Hall of Famer, a tremendous hitter over his lifetime, of course, uh, sagging a bit as he as he got older, but he's going to get 3,000 hits. And how many guys can say that in all of history is 20, 25 guys? Isn't that something like that? Not very many. It's how a can great you... accomplishment. And uh, people, unfortunately, on Twitter and those things, one of the reasons I don't get in there is anybody can say anything. And uh, I, I think it's funny. People write articles. Well, Twitter's blowing up over this. One person said one bad thing, and they make it the headline and the subject of a whole article because somebody in somewhere said one thing. Who is that person? What right. credibility do they have? Yeah. Credibility has gone by the wayside. Anybody can say anything they want. Indeed, they can, uh, and including us, we have to say. And, including but us. We put some work into it anyway, and we try to give you the facts and, and let you make decisions for yourself is the Baseball HQA. So once again, Matt, thanks a million, and I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Matt Beagle is a Stratomatic columnist at BaseballHQ.com, covers some points as well, and a former American League beat reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio. And I'm very grateful that Matt was able to help us out this week covering for Ray Murphy on the American League beat. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of what's coming up next week on Baseball HQ Radio, another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Derek Carty from the Bat and the Bat X projection systems, as well as the usual great stuff, our National and American League news analyses, our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's all coming up next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back. Good to be back. You said on Twitter that there are far too many broadcasters, writers, and analysts out there now who simply parrot the league's talking points. You were talking about the pitch clock discussion in particular, but how pervasive is this phenomenon and how does it affect the game and especially our perceptions of the game? I think it's fairly pervasive and it it affects probably not someone like you or I who are really plugged in. It, It more affects like the 
casual or maybe a, a step above the casual fan who you know is watching but not really plugged in. Um, like a few years ago, for example, pace of play was such a big thing, and and no one really talks about it much anymore. And I think it's because the the MLB media has moved on to like the the new talking point um, of the pitch clock, which I know is related, but it's not quite the same. Um, some of this is just a problem with the way the media is structured. So now you have MLB Network, which you know is its own network of reporters. They're it's it's part of you know the MLB empire, and they're understandably not going to challenge the party line. But I think even the independence of of some non MLB media has has eroded. Um, and another example of this is just how the lockout was covered. I, I feel like there were multiple reporters who really were just parroting what baseball, what MLB was saying as opposed to digging deeper into some of the root causes and, you know, recognizing the fact that major league baseball is, is quite the profitable enterprise. And this isn't to say the players should have gotten every single thing they wanted. I just feel like that should have been acknowledged more than it was during the discussion. Having said that, I agree with you entirely, but I think it's been going on for a long, long time. I'm old enough that I can remember the first kind of stirrings when Marvin Miller first showed up and Dick Young, who's a very famous columnist in New York, was absolutely dead set against the players getting anything. The reserve clause is great for baseball and, you know, all of these kind of what are now antiquated notions about player value and and player salaries and so forth. So this has been going on a long time, but I, I agree with you. It seems to be getting a little more pernicious now that Major League Baseball has taken a pretty big stake in its own media coverage and to some extent, a lot of the coverage that filters out into the smaller markets especially is going to be based on that because everybody knows, you know, the media follow the New York Times and the Washington Post, the baseball media follow the baseball network. Yeah. I mean, your point could very well be correct. I mean, I think we all have a perception about a lot of things like, oh, things are worse than they've ever been. And then when you go look back, you're like, well, you know, no, like there's things are cyclical and, you know, things right now might be bad, but this has certainly happened before. The Clayton Kershaw seven inning perfect game situation drew a lot of discussion on Twitter and elsewhere. You made a comment about it that was kind of jokey, but what was your take on how the Dodgers handled the seven inning perfect game? I, I had no problem with it. I, I feel like with the short spring training and, you know, with Clayton Kershaw returning from a pretty serious injury, uh, it was the right move. Um, I, I know there, this topic's kind of been beaten to the ground. We're getting to it late, but there is a mistaken impression that in some corners that he didn't go further because pitchers in general, I don't think Kershaw, are, are soft compared to the good old days. Um, but there is precedent for this. Like if you look back after the 1995 lockout and abbreviated spring that year, teams were just as cautious with pitchers the first couple times through and perhaps even more so. So this isn't really new. Like this isn't like it isn't like in 1995, everybody came out and through 110, 120 pitches, team, teams are just as careful at, at that point, you know, because they didn't want pitchers to get hurt coming off a of short spring training. At around that same time, Mike, you said this fits in well with the last two plus years of pretending that a whole bunch of extreme internal and external forces aren't having an outsized impact on baseball. What forces are working on baseball and what are the outsized effects? Well, I think most of it is is tied to COVID and, and particularly the downstream effects that we've seen. Um, so the pandemic has changed a lot in terms of, of starting pitchers, um, teams in 2020 not being careful, not wanting to ramp them up, not wanting them to go necessarily full speed. Um, so we lost like a, a big chunk of innings that pitchers would have thrown. This impacted innings and workload in 2021. 
Um, then there was no minor league season in 2020. I think we saw the ripple effect of that in 2021 when so many teams saw their hitters get promoted. I know minor leaguers generally struggle, but the struggles seemed even greater last year. Um, you know, now what we're seeing is is the lockout, and I just talked about this in the last question, is having an impact in a year where we might have had a more normal season and, and ramp up. And then, of course, you know, the rules regarding international travel. And, you know, just, just to point this out, I know you know, but th those rules cut both ways. Like some people complain about Canada, you know, and, and traveling there and have to be vaccinated. Well, the, the rules apply coming into the U.S. too if you're not a U.S. citizen. So it, none of that, like, this is unfair because, you know, Canada's making us do this thing. Um, but but in any event, those rules are having an impact. And, you know, I, I think as we're talking, there's, there's yet another COVID spike happening in the U.S., so I, I think some of these trends might have happened anyway, particularly with the pitcher workloads, but the pandemic has just kind of exacerbated it in my eyes. Another incident that took place that involved a Los Angeles team and created some controversy was Joe Madden intentionally walking Corey Seager with the bases loaded and the Angels were already behind by a run. There was a, quite a lot of uh, fuss going on. What did you make of the move once it became clear that Joe Madden had actually done this? Well, I mean, it, it worked, I believe, because I, I think the Angels won the game, um, if I remember correctly, but I, I didn't like it. So many years ago, when, when Barry Bonds was at his like absolute super peak, um, one of the writers at Baseball Prospectus, and this is before I was there, you know, he, he did an analysis of, you know, should you walk this version of Barry Bonds like every time or should you pitch to him? And what he came up with was that, well, you should pitch to him, but actually it's, it's a close call because that's how great Barry Bonds was. So Seager's a good hitter, but he's not Bonds. So it, it just is sort of that thing of like every time you put a runner on base, you're, you're just adding to the probability that you're going to you know, have an even bigger inning. Uh, ben Clemens, a guy who writes at Fangraphs, uh, covered the story as well, and his conclusion was just don't do it. <laughs> and he backed it up with some arithmetic and right. stuff like that. So right. I mean, well, that's what I mean. But Barry Bonds, who maybe with you know the the post PED Bonds was maybe the greatest hitter of all time. Even that was a borderline case, and no other hitter is is like that. Not even like you know Mike Trout. You said extended bullpens are an analyst dream, but they make baseball far worse than the shift or a pitcher taking a few extra seconds to deliver a pitch. What do you think is uh, the problem with extended bullpens? Well. I mean, matchups are optimized, which is great. But every time a manager comes out and makes a pitching change, it, it really slows the game down. And so where I'm bothered with pace, it doesn't bother me if a pitcher takes, you know, as you just said, you know, 30 seconds to throw a pitch instead of 25 seconds. Yes, I, I know it adds time to the game, but I already know I'm watching something that is, is not basketball or hockey. I'm not watching something that has a lot of boom, boom action. It's the long delays or breaks in a game that just make things drag. So one of those is pitching changes in inning. Every time the, a pitching coach visits a mound, every time there's a replay review and they have to go to New York and you know they have to have to talk about it. And even batters, you know, are turning around to argue with the umpire on you know pitches, which I, I feel happens so much more than it used to. This to me is what has a visible impact, and and that's the thing I don't like. You know, the, the pitcher taking a few more seconds to to throw a pitch doesn't affect things and. You know, honestly, the, the shift really, I know some people don't like it, but I, it's one of those things that once you kind of get used to it, it just sort of fades in the background for me as well. 
And of course, something that Major League Baseball never mentions in this context is the long breaks between innings so they can pile the ads in there, which is paying the freight, and nobody can really complain about it, I suppose. You're listening to Baseball yeah. HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, it's the time of year when a lot of us get excited by fast starts and disappointed by slow starts, perhaps too much in both directions. I'd like to get your takes on a few players that are having unusual starts and, um, uh, Mets shortstop Francisco Lindor might be the first one. He's over $40 in Baseball HQ's valuations. Three homers, nine RBIs, three bags. He's hitting 310. Where does he go for the rest of the season? Can he keep this up? Um, well, no. I mean, he can't keep this up, but I, I think he'll come closer to his, his peak years in Cleveland than what he did last year with the Mets. So I think high 20s in home runs, like 15 steals, maybe a couple more than that. A uh, solid batting average, but I, I don't see him breaking 300. We talked earlier about Seiya Suzuki. He's over $30, four homers, 11 RBIs. He doesn't have any stolen bases yet, but he's hitting 414, and he's walked more than he struck out. How do you like his rest of season now that you've had a good look? I mean, I like it a lot. I mean, he's not going to hit 400, but um, I, I think he'll come close to 30 home runs and come pretty close to a 300 average. Um, it's that batting guy that really impresses me because it, it's not just that he's drawing walks. It, it's that he's he's swinging like he's he's not chasing. Like everything he's swinging at is is a good pitch for him to hit. Zone control is really important, and there are some guys who are not that good at it, and they're the kind of guys you should be worried about. This is a metric I think that all fantasy players should be really cognizant of in draft season but also during the season to see what players are doing well at not swinging at balls that are outside the zone it seems fundamental but for a lot of a long time nobody even looked at it now we can we should uh, f five homers nine rbis for ozzy albies pushing him over 30 dollars but he's only batting 230 and he's got one steal and one caught stealing do you think he can keep up the power but get his batting average and stolen bases back up where we were expecting well, I, so Albies' problem is he struggled as a left-handed batter against righties um, going like back this year and last year. So he's hitting 158 in a real small sample this year, but now he's now hitting 230 against righties going back to 2021. There should be some improvement, but he's honestly not going to crack like 250, 260 unless you know he, he changes something. One change has been suggested is actually having him just bat right-handed. Um, I think he'll run. I, I think he'll at least still double digits and you know probably come close to the, what he did last year, which I think was about 15. I agree with you about these uh, switch hitters. There's more than Albies who just don't hit well when they are on one side of the plate versus the other, and they should just stop. You know, it, it seems like a fairly fundamental thing for them to think of or for their coaches to think of, but a lot of well, times they just let them keep going. Well, Albies is weird because like some some hitters that do that are, are completely useless. Like Albies hits home runs, he's essentially selling out for power, batting from the left side, and when he connects with the mistake, he hits a home run. And he doesn't really do much else. And home runs aren't nothing, but uh, I think the Braves might prefer that he got on base a little more often. Uh, Tyro Estrada in San Francisco, twenty four dollars. Factor fluke. I use baseball HQ's terminology. Well, he's not going to earn 24. I mean, he, he could be a solid, like, regular. Um, and already, like, he's won for his last 10 with an RBI and a steal. It's kind of the fun thing about, you know, the small samples. Um, I think he could be a low-end double-digit earner for sure and, and a bargain, just not this kind of bargain. 
I think I heard you say on the Flags Fly Forever podcast that you host, you took Joey Gallo in an on-base percentage draft, a good move considering he walks so much, but through Tuesday of this week, he's got a 256 on-base percentage, no home runs, no runs scored, and no RBIs. How are you feeling about Joey Gallo? I mean, not great if I'm being honest about it. I would have hoped for some production. Um, you know, his his Stackhouse numbers do kind of scream it's early. Um, he's got an expected slug of 507, and you know, his expected you know um, woba is 346, which, which it would be down a little bit, but not nearly down the way it is. So, you know, look, he, he's nothing more than a 200 hitter, and he's going to strike out a lot. But I, I I think the power comes for him. It's it's just really you know kind of one of those weird things where. It, it just hasn't, it just looks really bad because of this, or it looks worse than it should because of the small sample. I remember a year or two ago here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast, and I was talking about slumps. And the, whoever I was talking to had looked into it in, in some detail and realized that pretty much every player has them. And the, the main difference in the perception of them is when they happen. Early or late, it's bad. In the middle, nobody even notices. But, you know, Joey Gallo's going to have a stretch like this probably every year. You could look back and check on it. But I suspect he's probably had a week or two like this. It just wasn't so noticeable because he didn't do it right at the start of the year. Yeah, what's really frustrating about Gallo, though, is he he's such a streaky hitter, he can do this for a month. And, like, he it might take him until, like, early next month to pick it up. And the problem with that is that the Yankees might get impatient and start sitting him. Um, particularly against lefties like that that's kind of the risk with him not that he doesn't produce but that he loses some some playing time while he sorts it out would you buy low on joey gallo i think i would um i i you know it depends on the league format like obviously in a non-on-base league i'm not nearly as excited because the average is is a sinkhole before we go on, uh, I mentioned that I heard about this on flags fly forever your podcast i haven't got a new edition in a while are you still doing the pod we're we're doing it occasionally, but we we've kind of struggled because we we had a new producer come in and it, it's been kind of spotty. So we're we're hoping to get back to a regular schedule soon. You should do what I do: do everything yourself, produce it, host it, do the research, everything. Maybe maybe we can talk offline about you know after the show's over about how you record and what you use and and maybe all I that kind of that. stuff. Yeah, sure, if you want. Yeah. I, I took Cole Calhoun and Yuli Gurriel in an on-base league because I thought they'd be pretty good in an on-base league and otherwise. So far this year, uh, 200 on-base percentage, one run scored between them. How worried should I be about Yuli and Cole? I'd be more worried about Cole just, just because it's not difficult to imagine a scenario where the Rangers like just move on. He, he's a free agent. They're not really that invested in him. Um, he, he's older. I think Grail should be fine. Um, he's not an on-base guy in general, so the slow start just kind of hurts. Um, and be- because in an on-base league, you definitely want Grail to maximize that average because otherwise he- he's hurting you there. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about Grail. Akil Badu was a tout darling coming into 2022. So far this year, one home run and one other RBI, and he's batting 115. What do you think of Akil Badu? Well, he's not this bad, but I, I wasn't really a fan. Um, something I noticed about him in the preseason is if you you know take out the first two weeks last year when he was lights out, uh, his slash line was 256, 333, 401. That's okay. You know, it just isn't really speak, I think, to where his ADP was. Um, he's adequate in deep mix, and, and those steals are, are nice, but I think the expectations for him were higher than they should have been. 
How about the Mets? Tyler McGill, Chris Bassett, and Carlos Carrasco of the Suddenly Amazing Mets have seven games so far, 39 innings combined, 138 ERA and 077 whip combined. And that's not even counting Max Scherzer, who actually has the highest ERA of the group at 250. Is this 1969 all over again for Mets pitching? Well, I, you know, I, it's funny because I, the thing, the team I compare them more to is, is 2006. Um, and not really so much because of the pitching, because that team was Tom Glavin and, and Pedro Martinez and not quite as much behind them. Uh, but just overall, it looks like a pretty balanced, like stacked team across the board. Um, I like some of the hitting imports they brought in, um, like Starley Marte and Marcana and even Eduardo Escobar. Um, but yeah, obviously the, the pitching is not going to continue on this level. Like Bassett and McGill both got hit a little bit, bit against the Giants. Uh, but yeah, they, they, this this staff looks good. I think Carrasco in particular, he he was really underestimated coming into the season. I think some people thought he was finished, and they looked at his age. Um, but yeah, he he kind of looks like the Carrasco, you know, with with those peak years in Cleveland right now. I'll talk about. Tyler McGill a little bit later on in my extra innings comment, but Tyler McGill's been getting a lot of coverage in the analytical community, and most of it's pretty positive. They seem to think that he's made changes that have really justified the kind of performance he's putting on. I mean, it's it's not going to be 066 whip or whatever it is at the current moment, but it's going to be good. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I'll, I'll kind of you know let you save your comment, but I, I do agree. Speaking of the Mets, former Met Noah Syndergaard is now in L.A. pitching for the Angels. He had a 159 ERA 079 whip through his first two starts, but only four strikeouts per nine. Should we be excited about the decimals or concerned about the strikeouts? I'd, well, I'd probably be more concerned than, than excited. So the, the funny thing about Syndergaard is even when he was throwing like super hard with the Mets, he was never the huge strikeout guy that like people like thought he was. Like if you go back and look at the the, the strikeout percentages and you know everything he did there, it was kind of near elite. It was never like elite. And now that his velocity is down, like what, the way it's working for him is he's generating like a lot of ground balls. And like so many that he historically hasn't done that. So like unless something's changed in his approach that that he's making hitters ground out so much, I, I'd be kind of worried. Like it's so he's either going to pick up that velocity as the season goes on, and that that's certainly a possibility. And given he's coming off injury, or he won't, and you know some of those hits are going to start to fall in. So I I I'd, I'd kind of be concerned that you know he, he might improve, but there's still some pretty serious regression coming. Yeah, it feels that way. I've always thought of Noah Syndergaard as a big strikeout pitcher, and uh, I did happen to look him up, and you're right. It's not really that spectacular. It's it's good. It just isn't, like, that's the thing. I think the reputation is that he's, like, this big-time strikeout guy, and, you know, he's not. Yeah, strikeout rates at Baseball HQ, as as the way we keep track him, is strikeouts per nine, kind of peaked at 10.7 or so in 2016, which is good. And uh, ever since then, like, 10, 10, 9, 9, 9, and now 4, as I mentioned. Uh, I assume that's going to go up some, but we shouldn't be expecting, you know, the return of Roger Clemens here. No. We have had the return of Justin Verlander. He's 069-069 ERA and whip after two starts. What do you think of Justin Verlander? I I liked him coming in, and, you know, again, this is another he's not going to do this, obviously, but um, looks legitimate in terms of being an ace. 
Uh, I, I think my big concern with, with Verlander is that he's, I said this before the season started, because he's 39 years old, because he's coming off injury, you know, we all know he's not going to throw 220 innings like, you know, he, he did as recently as 2019. I'm a little concerned the Astros maybe kind of keep his workload down with, with the playoffs in mind where they're like, well, you know, we, we know we need want to save some bullets. The playoffs are extended. We don't want you to be in a position where you're gassed or potentially getting hurt in October. So I, I think the performance is going to be great. I wouldn't be shocked, though, if he only throws like 130, 140 innings as the Astros pick in the second half kind of hold down the workload a little bit. You mentioned Sean Manaya a little bit earlier, 142-079 with two wins and two starts and a strikeout per inning. Can Sean Manaya keep up this, what is for him, a new level of performance? He, he can. Now, now what's interesting about Manaya is that, um, and I get to give my, my colleague Mikey Aheto at, at Baseball Prospectus credit for this because he, he unearthed this. Um, Manaya increased his extension and he lowered his release height. So as a result, it's making it harder for hitters to get a read on, on his pitches. Um, what's really interesting about this is his velocity actually isn't back to where it was last year. I know this is true for a lot of pitchers. Um, so if that velocity comes back, and I know that's an if, I, I think not only can – well, you can't keep this up, but I think he has the potential to be an SP1. Like he has that potential to kind of exceed what we were expecting and, and finally rise to to the level that, that some people saw him as as a prospect. And you know, he's kind of a good point. You know, we were talking about prospects before – He's 30 years old, and I think for some people, they look at pitchers and think, oh, you know, he, he should have done it already. Some pitchers really don't crack the code until their late 20s, early 30s, and I think Manaya could be one of those pitchers. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'm curious what you make of Brad Keller in Kansas City. Two starts, a 138 ERA, 0.62 whip, but a strikeout per nine under seven. Yeah, I mean... So, you know, speaking of pitchers that we, you know, change things, um, Keller came, worked with a uh, pitching coach, Brad Islands. Um, it, it's funny. I'm sorry, Dave Island. It's funny that he's a pitching coach that, that ages us because we remember him as a pitcher. Um, so he worked with him and the other Royals coaching staff. Um, he reworked a change in the offseason and he's picked up a little velocity in his fastball. Um, one thing about him, though, I'd like to see more separation on velocity between the fastball and change. And as a result, I still see him as more of a back-end starting pitcher. Um, I, I will say if there's a team where you know defense can help out a low strikeout arm, it's the Royals. They have a really impressive defense, particularly when Mondesi's healthy, which he is right now. Um, but I still see Keller more as like a kind of a back-end fantasy starter, and I, I'm not expecting a big leap for him. On the flip side, how about Madison Bumgarner? He's got a 138 ERA, but a 139 whip, and he's got more walks than strikeouts. I'd be selling high on Bumgarner if I could find a trading partner who was also high. But what's your view on Madison Bumgarner? Yeah, I don't really have much to say. I, I think I just kind of agree with you on this one. I, you know, it, it just looks pretty, pretty fluky, pretty much of a, a small sample thing going for him. Um, you know, I, 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 the, the walks will come down, but I, I just would, I, I'd sell if you can. It's just tough nowadays because people, you know, we're all kind of reading the same stuff and, and see the same things. Todd Zola always says if you have a pitcher whose ERA doesn't seem to line up with his whip, trust the whip because there's a lot more factors in run scoring than there is in allowing base hits and allowing bases on yeah. balls. And uh, I don't know what uh, Madison Bumgarner's expected ERA or, or FIP type Sierra, those kind of values, but I bet they're pretty high and I'd be curious to see what they are. Uh, 
the big guy, of course, in all of this, as far as underperforming pitchers, has been Garrett Cole. 635 ERA, 141 whip, 5.6 strikeouts per nine. We heard some noise last season, Mike, about uh, Cole's decline after the league cracked down on the sticky stuff. How much added concern do you think Cole's fantasy managers should be feeling with this continued underperformance? Well, you know what makes me nervous is he, he actually recovered for a while. Like he, he's a pitcher really fluctuated and, and the sticky stuff doesn't tell the whole story. But he had a hamstring injury at the end of last year that that kind of threw him off and he had some bad like numbers at, at the end of the year as a result of coming back too soon. You know, it's funny, he, he's throwing harder than he ever has, but he's also getting hit extremely hard, which does make me wonder, to your point, if there's something going on with the spin rate or, you know, something going on with the movement of his pitches that we're not necessarily seeing. Um, but but it's just it's just such a weird kind of funky profile and, and go, does go back to this like small sample size stuff. Like, you know, if you if you look at the, the hard hit percentage, that's actually down. So you'd think, oh, you know, he's, he's getting hit really hard. He's allowing a lot of home runs, but he just seems off like by like a couple beats. And what I don't know is I, I don't know if like there's something that the Yankees will kind of be able to unlock in him or if we're going to have to go through you know, another four to six weeks of, of watching Cole struggle. Cause we've, we've seen this too with Cole before. Like we we've seen him struggle, you know, for, for stretches. You know, you mentioned that with this, with his teammate, Joey Gallo, we've seen him struggle for stretches for like, you know, multiple starts where he's just not himself. And then he clicks it back in. I think he will, um, you know, it will click for him. It's just going to be a little bit tough in you know, probably for the next couple starts. Earlier in the show, I was talking with Matt Beagle in the American League News Report, and he mentioned the importance of legs for a pitcher, and it might be something that we don't often uh, focus enough importance on, that without the legs, like Tom Seaver always said, it starts with the legs and everything comes from there. And if if there's something wrong with the legs, then there might be something wrong with the pitching. Uh, There's been some legit differences of opinion coming in on Cincinnati's Tyler Molly. He's got a 782 ERA, a 166 whip, but his FIP is under two and he's striking out 11 and a half guys per nine. Is Tyler Molly just unlucky here? Is there a buying opportunity? Well, I mean, he, he faced the Dodgers. I, I mean, that, that was part of it. I mean, that's not the entire excuse, but you know, tough lineup, good team. Um, he's a buying opportunity. Um, a couple things though, the, the Reds offense is bad, which means if you, you know, you're thinking, Oh, you know, they're going to like get a good pitcher. You're, you're going to get a good pitcher without a lot of wins. Um, and then the other thing too is, you know, I, I know not everything's mashup dependent, but you know, if you can buy, I, I would try to wait, um, you know, a little bit if you can. Um, he's got the, I'm not sure when this is dropping, but he's home against the Cardinals um, tomorrow, the 23rd, which is tough. And then next week, he's at Colorado. So you know, don't don't start Tyler a struggling Tyler Molly in Colorado. Might just want to wait till May to make that acquisition, or maybe even want to wait till after that Colorado start and you know hope somebody is is kind of panicked enough at that point to to just give up looking at the raw numbers. And finally, you Darvish, 628 ERA, 126 whip, striking out just over eight strikeouts per nine innings. What do you think of you Darvish going ahead? Well, I mean, he had one awful outing against the Giants where it looked like he had nothing. Um, in the other two starts, he has a .71 ERA and, and a .63 whip. You know, I don't think these either of these extremes tell us much. Um, you know, one thing that worries me a little bit, um, the spin rate's down. So, you know, even though he did get the strikeouts in his last start, that's something to note. But I think if he can stay healthy, he, he's a solid SB2 in, in mix. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at our experts, Boons and Baines, guys who are likely to be better than expected down the road. Uh, Baines are likely to not be so good. Let's start with your Boons in the American League. Who's a batter you think could be looking at good times ahead? Uh, Kyle Tucker. Um, so Kyle Tucker's off to a miserable start. Uh, he's sitting a shade under a buck. He does have two home runs, but... Um, this is a player where everything, whether it's the stack cast numbers or, you know, the expected OBA, uh, he looks perfectly fine. And he, he did this last year, too. He got off to a not quite this slow, but he got off to a slow start. I think Kyle Tucker will be fine. I, I doubt anyone is kind of you know silly enough to, to trade him on the cheap. But if somebody is, you know, if even if somebody's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll take your third or fourth rounder for Tucker. I'm done. I jump all over that. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a boon? So somebody on the other age of the, the age spectrum who's, who's off to a, a poor start who I would grab onto is Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt's 34 years old, but I don't see anything in the numbers that you know, makes me think that this is the end for him. You know, oddly enough, his, his expected stats are, are lower, but I, I think that's just a small sample size thing with him. I think he's going to be fine. Um, something interesting about Goldschmidt is he has two stolen bases, so he, he's probably going to run like he did last year, which means he'll steal like 10 to 12 bases. And from a first baseman, that's that's a nice thing to get. No kidding. I remember when Paul Goldschmidt, I had him uh, in a couple of years where he gave you more than 10, and it was a it was a delightful bonus for a really good hitter. Going over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Um, so it's somebody I noticed is on your, your fantasy, on your tout team, so maybe this will make you happy, um, is Jose Berrios. Um, so he's, a lot of his bad numbers come from that first start against the, the Rangers, and he's gotten better and better in each start. I think he'll be fine. Um, it's easy, though, to look, you know, I have to admit, I don't have any of my team, so it is easy psychologically to look at his overall numbers and think, man, he's been terrible. I wouldn't want him on my team, so... Um, you never know. I know you're too smart to, to move him, but I, I know there's some people who might not feel that way and, and might think there's an underlying issue. I just don't, I don't see it. I think he'll be okay. I've had Jose Barrios in, on my tout team each of the last three years and traded him every year, not because he was pitching badly, but because uh, what, what he could provide was something I didn't need. So, uh, you know, get steals for him or home runs or whatever. Uh, I think that's a valid thing. Barrios is an interesting guy. I actually got a couple of Toronto pitchers in this league and then in other leagues as well. It's you just got to think he's going to get his share of wins with that offense, and then the, the bullpen is actually quite good, although Romano looked terrible against Boston on Thursday. Let's go over to the National League pitcher who's a boon. Uh, Marcus Stroman. Uh, so Marcus Stroman had, has struggled, and there's different reasons for it. Um, he really got squeezed in his last game against the Rays a couple of days ago. Um, there, there were like five or six pitches, if you looked at the map, where he just completely should have been strikes. And the other, the other thing with him is tough schedule. He's been home against the Brewers, at the Rockies, and then home against the Rays. Uh, the schedule gets easier. I think Stroman's a good pitcher. I don't oversell him. He's certainly not an ace. He's like more of a, a mid-tier kind of arm. But I think his performance will come closer to like a, a ERA a little bit over three uh, with decent strikeouts, just like he did with the Mets last year. People look at his strikeout rate and they think, I'm not so sure, but 
man, you multiply the rate by the volume, the number of innings that he's likely to pitch, and you're, you're, it's not quite the same situation as it was with Rick Porcello a few years ago. He had a rel- really mediocre strikeout rate, but he threw 225 innings or whatever it was, so he was close to the top of the leaderboard in strikeout. So Stroman strikes me that same way. Uh, let's go to your Baines. These are players you think might be disappointing as we go forward through the season. Again, we'll start in the American League with a batter who's a Bane. Um, Eugenio Suarez, uh, you know, I talked about this with Chapman before. I, I am just not really the biggest fan of, of low average hitters. Um, I get that with Suarez, that the power ceiling is is much higher than it is with Chapman, but I just don't really trust players like this. And, you know, kind of add to that, uh, players switching leagues. I know it's not quite the same because we have interleague play, but players switching leagues have even more of a struggle. Uh, he's going to see a lot of pitchers in the ALS that he has never seen before. Um, I think it would be a really rough year for Suarez. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? Uh, Cabrian Hayes. Uh, you know, look, I, I love Cabrian Hayes, a player. I, I, his defense is great. I've, I've already seen a couple games with him where he's just made tremendous plays um, around the bag at third base. And I actually got to watch a game where his dad, Charlie Hayes, was you know in the broadcast booth for a while. And that was awesome. It was, it was great to hear Charlie, who I loved as a player, like light up and talk about his son. Uh, but for fantasy, and particularly in the short term, I just don't see a lot of power based on the way Hayes swings and based on – you know, everything else in the profile. So I think some people are expecting this big breakout from Hayes based on his ADP. I think he'll be fine. I just don't see him as a star, at least not right away. Over to the mound once more in the American League. Who's a pitcher who's going to be a bane? Um, Tanner Houck. So, you know, Tanner Houck is off to a, a decent enough start in, in ERA, but um, not really striking out a lot of batters. Um, I, I, the walk total is kind of high. Um, also, you know, he's, he decided to skip his start this week in Toronto and, you know, it just can lead to a situation, particularly in the short term where he's rusty, he's going to have to, you know, pitch after like skipping a turn in the rotation. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wary of Tanner Hawk, particularly, um, in the short term this year. And of course I'm skipping my start in Toronto is shorthand for I'm not vaccinated and, uh, or yeah. Probably it's that's a, the case. And, and it, that is the case. He said, he said it was a personal choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all these kind of euphemisms we had for I didn't get vaccinated. But that raises another issue is that the 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 virus is ebbing and flowing all the, all the time now. And, and uh, guys who are not vaccinated tend to have worse results in that regard. And you could lose Tanner Houck for 10 days to the COVID list. Uh, yes. Worse. Well, and yeah, I was going to say the, or worse too. And, and that that's really part of it, which is I, I really have, I've discounted a lot of players this year who I know are not vaccinated for that reason, because I'm like, well, I, putting my side of my feelings, whether you should or shouldn't get vaccinated, I don't want to buy into a player that I'm going to miss out on for two weeks, potentially when, you know, it, and particularly, you know, it's not like this is Aaron Nola. It's not like somebody who, or Chris Sale, like not someone where the ceiling is so high where it's like, okay, like I'll, I'll just suck it up if that happens. And finally, who's a national league pitcher who could be a bane? Um, Logan Webb. Um, so I know Webb had a great season last year. Um, I actually get to see him um, in the Mets game. Um, you know, that he just pitched and there's some stuff I saw. I didn't really like um, his, his velocity looked down. He looked kind of tentative. Um, I know it's just one game. I'm, I'm not saying that that should, you know, be the be all and end all. Um, I just have some concerns about Logan Webb because, you know, he's, he's had shoulder issues in the past. Um, I, I think even if he repeats what he did last year, um, I have some skepticism that he's going to be able to provide much more volume than he did. And I'm just guessing that the numbers are, are he, he's due for some regression in my eyes. I think the numbers are going to be somewhat worse. 
How much bonus do you give pitchers who pitch on teams that seem to have figured something out as the Giants have done? I, I, I think give them some of a bonus, although what's really tough is that with a team like the Giants and the Rays is that they're, they're typically not going to let like your, their starters like Webb like, you know, pitch, pitch deep into a game or pitch really deep into a game. So the, the, the bonus comes with a bit of, little bit of a penalty, if it makes any sense. You just have to keep that in mind and be like, well, you know, I'm going to get some production from this player, but I'm not necessarily going to get, you know, everything I need. And, you know, it's not bulletproof either. Like we, we saw like Alex Cobb that, you know, went on the IL, um, you know, being a smart team doesn't limit the risk that, you know, just comes with, with athletes and pitchers in particular. I think that's an interesting point that you made. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Russell Carlton's uh article about the evolution of pitching these teams are getting much better at optimizing what their pitchers do but often optimizing it doesn't necessarily pay dividends for fantasy managers because part of the optimization is you used to throw six innings now you're going to throw four because we figured out that's what you can do yeah i mean at some point we we really have to look at wins as a fantasy category and if we should you know continue to use it or you know if if we should somehow manage like our, our rosters differently well, there's plenty of uh, plenty of discussion every year about how the categories ought to be adjusted. There's a lot of resistance, of course, because the game's been around for as long as it has, and people get used to it. And all, all the arguments, basically, that real baseball people make about changing fundamental rules. So I guess we have to fight the good fight and see what happens and play the games with the rules they give us. Uh, Mike, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with Mike Gianella. Oh, I can be found at baseballprospectus.com. Um, and I, my Twitter handle is Mike Gianella, G-I-A-N-E-L-L-A, all one word. And um, I have two articles a week. I have the Monday Fab article, which you mentioned, and then every Thursday I have like a, a freeform column. And you, you mentioned the podcast, that's Flags Fly Forever. Um, we are hoping to, we're hoping to have that back um, pretty soon. Well, I hope you do. It's a terrific podcast. I listened to the last one was uh, with Tim McCulloch, you mentioned, uh, and it was it was interesting and funny and uh, and a lot of fun to listen to. And I should put in a plug for you on Twitter. Uh, we talked about this earlier. A lot of your tweets have nothing to do with baseball. I think baseball fans and everybody should uh, should follow you because you're just a funny guy. You've got a lot of offbeat witticisms that you attach to current events and stuff. You do a terrific job of that. Well, I really appreciate the the compliment and thank you. And I, I definitely enjoy your, I know you're more limited on social media, but I definitely enjoy your own social media. I enjoy this program. I listen to it regularly. And hopefully, I, even if I'm not back on Tout AL, we'll be back in person next year and I'll, I'll be in New York for, for that weekend. Yeah, we'll have to go sit at a bar and uh, talk about baseball or yeah, whatever. Absolutely. We end yeah. up talking about lots of different stuff. Thanks again, Mike. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you again later in the year. All right. Sounds good. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus. A quick break here, and then we're back with our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete, but they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just pay a, a word of thanks and a, a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And, 
And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I... And sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful and I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up, and leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at St. Louis infielder Nolan Gorman is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His swig lacks fluidity, but he generates easy power regardless, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 minor league baseball analyst, which goes on to say that his power bat will carry him a long way. And it appears that's already happening. Through his first 45 at-bats for AAA Memphis in 2022, soon-to-be 22-year-old on May 10th, St. Louis Cardinals infielder Nolan Gorman has already launched seven home runs, including homering in five straight games against AAA Charlotte and Omaha, respectively. Often listed as a third baseman, a system where Nolan Arenado appears to be firmly entrenched at third, Nolan Gorman has reportedly been gaining more opportunities at second base in preparation for his expected Major League debut in 22. Even so, switching Cardinals second baseman Tommy Edmond is currently batting 371 through 10 games, albeit a small sample size, after swiping 30 bags in 2021. Boy, those are depth problems that you love to have on ball clubs. Unless you're Nolan Gorman. That's why 21-year-old St. Louis Cardinals infielder Nolan Gorman, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot. Maybe worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. So, yes, playing time in St. Louis may be an issue for Gorman, but Gorman's sizzling 22 start appears to be supplanting that issue thus far. Worth noting, Nolan Arenado reportedly has a player opt-out in his contract after this year. Thus, if the Cardinals falter, or if Arenado indicates a preference to opt out of his contract after the season, Cardinals management may wish to see if Gorman is perhaps a long-term solution or even a fit at second base or third base, possibly leading to extended playing time for Gorman prior to the trade deadline, notwithstanding a service time issues, of course. 
Plus, remember, the Cardinals also have third-base power-hitting prospect Jordan Walker waiting in the wings at double-A. Even so, the possibility of Gorman's 30-plus home run power potential at second base is intriguing. Digging deeper is something we'd love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Although Gorman's batting eye ratio, 0.32 walks to strikeouts at AAA Memphis in 2021, perhaps reflects an aggressive approach at the plate, Gorman's 79% contact rate is very close to our 80% benchmark at BaseballHQ.com, signifying baseball's best contact hitters. On that basis, quoting Baseball HQ's 2022 baseball forecaster, now may be the time to get in on the ground floor and elevate your game with 21-year-old high-flying St. Louis Cardinals infield prospect Nolan Gorman, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about some really good baseball reading I've been doing lately. Like you, part of my fantasy due diligence is reading a lot about baseball and fantasy baseball. Of course, I read the BaseballHQ.com news and analysis from cover to cover every day, if a website has a cover, but you get my meaning. Like you, I also read Outside Baseball HQ, and this week I'd like to mention three articles I've read online that I thought were just terrific. First, at Baseball Prospectus, the well-known analyst Russell Carlton discussed the Clayton Kershaw perfect game deal from last week as a springboard to discuss the broader issue of pitcher usage in general. Carlton used to post his analyses under the nom de plume pizza cutter. In this article, he argues with excellent evidence that pitchers are increasingly being assigned end points for their appearances. They used to just go till they couldn't go anymore, but now they go out to the mound with a certain number of pitches or a certain number of times through the order or a certain number of outs in mind, and those end points have been strategic in nature because they let pitchers max out their effort appropriately because they know when their shift is going to be over. And that, in turn, has launched the evolution or revolution that has created an entirely new species of ball player, the modern reliever. It's great stuff from Russell Carlton and plenty to think about from the fantasy perspective. As teams realize the century-old starter-reliever model has blown up, where will we go searching for strikeouts and wins? And for that matter, should our rules oblige us to search for strikeouts and wins? At a Mets fan site called AmazonAvenue.com, writer David Capobianco has a really interesting analysis of the sensational start by Mets right-hander Tyler McGill. Now, in case you've missed the news, McGill through three starts has a 2.20 ERA, an 0.92 WHIP, a 24% strikeout rate, and a 3% walk rate. And though we don't talk about wins, he has two of them. The author acknowledges that the sample sizes in 2022 are still very small, but he also notes that the improved outcomes for Tyler McGill are backed up by the foundational changes he's made, especially a simplified delivery that has led to more velocity, actually a lot more, on his fastball, but even more usefully on his changeup, which has grown by 5 miles an hour, and though it's closer to his fastball, which ordinarily is a bad thing, he's making it work. 
He has reshaped his slider to add almost four inches of vertical drop, and he's showing much better control. It's a very interesting read. There's another good study of McGill's improvements by Jake Malo over at Fangraphs as well. Speaking of Fangraphs, Justin Choi has a really good analysis of the early surge in pitcher velocity this season so far, including the observation that starting pitch velocities are rapidly catching up to reliever velocities. To me, this analysis dovetails with what Russell Carlton was saying in that Choi suggests there's been a trade-off between effectiveness and longevity. Pitchers are no longer conditioned or expected to go the distance. They're often built for five, six, maybe seven max effort innings. He also cites improved coaching, which could result in velocity gains extending into the pitcher's mid-30s. A lot to think about in this article as well. And over at The Athletic, while my friends Gene McCaffrey and Michael Salfino are doing their usual excellent work and need no mention from little old me, but there's a really well-done yarn by Zach Buchanan about a guy called Cam Boozer. Boozer was a career minor leaguer, never got above high A. And in 2017, after six years in the minors, he walked away from the game. Or should I say the game walked away from him. In that final 2017 season at High A Fort Myers, he walked seven hitters in two and two-thirds innings. That's 23.6 walks per nine. Anyway, he left the game, became a union carpenter in Washington, in Buchanan's great phrasing, hanging ceilings instead of curveballs. Then, just for the heck of it, he threw a fastball, you know, just to see. And it didn't hurt. So he started working out and one day threw a fastball in front of a Rapsodo device 96 miles an hour. That got people interested. Fast forward to 2021 and Boozer was pitching an indie ball with a 193 ERA and a 129 whip. The Diamondbacks signed him to a minor league deal and sent him to double A where it's not going so well. In three and two thirds innings so far, Boozer has allowed nine hits and five more walks and six earned runs. I'll do the math for you. 1473 ERA, 382 whip. Major League equivalents don't even go that high, but he's working at it, and he's hanging in there, and it's nothing much for fantasy purposes, but I thought it was just a really good story. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 15 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike is a very successful fantasy player and a top-notch analyst and writer at Baseball Prospectus. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and sitting in for Ray Murphy, Matt Beagle. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio for you, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. 
We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Derek Carty from the BAT and the BAT-X projection systems, as well as our National American League news, baseball HQ commentaries, all that good stuff. Derek Carty from the BAT and BAT-X next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. I'll talk with you next Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.